Hi, everybody, and welcome to Full Marks. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And today we're going to be talking about A Night in Casablanca. Casablanca, the Humphrey Bogart and, and Akert Bergman film? Uh, does that have the words A Night in, oh, you're in right. front of it? Sorry. That's how, you know, that's how you know it's not. I shorten everything down. Do you? What do you call this show? Foo. <laughs> okay. Fair enough, Doc. <laughs> it's good to it's good to see you. Uh, if you're listening to the show for the very first time, once again, that's a little odd that you didn't start at the beginning, but that's okay. I'm not one to judge. Um, my name is Ian. Uh, I make a living as a comedian. I work for Mad Magazine, do cartoons for The New Yorker, wrote uh, for Simpsons and Futurama comic books, and currently do uh, two books. One is called Exorcisters out of Image Comics, and the other one is Sparks, about two cats that dress up as a dog and save the world. And David is the colorist on that. Yes. There you go. And I'm the, I'm the writer. So those are, those are in stores now. Exorcist is a comic. Uh, Sparks is a book. Uh, and Dave, what are you? What's your deal? I like to hang around the house. And this gives me lots of time to research things I like, I guess. Very good. So David is a, uh, is a, a very, uh, I'm a know, man about house. He's a man about, he's a man about house, the old British series that, uh, uh, Three's People was based on. We don't, we don't do a lot of research. That's that's a lie. Dave does a lot of research. Dave is a big Marx Brothers fan, has seen all the movies, uh, and has been researching the heck out of the past of the Marx Brothers. Mm. I am a casual uh, enjoyer of the Marx Brothers. I know about them culturally, but I have not seen all the movies, including the one that we are going to talk about today. So I'm seeing this for the very first time. Cool. Now, when was the last time you saw uh, A Night in Casablanca? Uh, it would have been 1977. Wow. And it was the first Marx Brothers film that I've ever I ever saw. Okay. And it's what made me love the Marx Brothers. Well, that's really interesting. And so okay. I'm coming at it with a bit of a bias. Okay. But I didn't feel, I didn't go in with, with any kind of preconceived notions that it was great. Because I felt like, you know, judging by the kind of course we've been following yeah. with the films, uh, that it probably wasn't going to be great. But to be honest with you, I thought it was a lot better than the last couple of MPs. Oh, absolutely films. it was. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you as well. See, what, what I've been told. Uh, you know, I, I, I haven't, uh, really read up on, on what the films are like or the plots because I did want to come at it pretty fresh. Yeah. But you can't help but hear people say, yeah, after, you know, Day at the Races, it's mm. all downhill. So I have not seen that hill so far, really. Like, yeah. uh, even, even something like The Big Store, which was, I think, probably the weakest of the bunch so sure, far. Sure. Uh, was, still had a lot of entertaining yeah, so, Marx Brothers exactly. stuff in it. Exactly. And this was a step up from that. Yeah, you I feel like if they weren't strangling the Marx Brothers with the boring, <clears throat> boring plots of the films, uh, they'd be a lot better. And I even feel that way about Day of the Races. I think Day of the Races is kind of a is a weak film too. I prefer, say, At the Circus to Day of the Races. Okay, Very myself, good. I think. And if you want to hear Dave talk more about that, each of the episodes mm. uh, has its own uh, episode of our our show as well. And uh, we like to hear from you uh, as well underneath about what 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 do you think? How do they rank? How does this go? Mm. Uh, but the way we usually do these shows, and you know what? Let's stay consistent because we don't have many more of these left. We're we running do. out of Marx Brothers we movies are. We are. right quick. Well, let's say something else because... Sure, let's say something else. Because uh, we are kind of running out of time. And are we going to do a, a final show, like a maybe question and answer show where we can take... Listeners well, let me ask you and, this much, Dave, because okay. again, uh, I'm not really sure what the plan is. I'm sure you've told it to me and I, I wasn't listening. Uh, so we have another movie after this. Is that correct? Yes, we have one more. Love, love, love Happy? Love Happy. All right, very film, good. Yes. And then after that, uh, we're thinking then of doing uh, a maybe a question show or uh, a leftovers show. And, yeah. and by that, I mean 
we've we've probably forgotten certain things after every show you usually write us and tell us oh how about this how about that so uh, <laughs> maybe you could do that you could write us give us things we've missed or sure. questions about things you think we should have uh, covered yeah. uh, and uh, we won't necessarily be able to answer everything but uh, it might make for a, a nice last kind of uh, roundup show yeah we can sort of kind of give us our general sense not necessarily rankings i know you don't like rankings that much but kind of a general sense of of how we approached all the films i am not going to stop you from ranking things i don't myself i don't like putting art yeah. as in like three two one and what have sure. you yeah that's why i was called ranking roger when i was in the english beat so mm, my love of i think ranking. it was more because of the smell <laughs> it's true it was a little rank <laughs> uh and also your name was roger back then yes yeah so that was very different then you had to change it because you had the you know student loan debts tax problems that's right a lot of tax problems mm -hmm. which is really silly now that you're revealing that on the air <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, we're at sneakydragon.com. That is our other podcast that we do. And you can always see these episodes there and uh, leave a question underneath any of the episodes in our message boards or go sneakyd at sneakydragon.com or go to sneaky underscore dragon on Twitter or sneakydragon.tumblr. Uh, so those are the ways to contact us. And if you want to be part of that last show, you know, normally we, we give away something, but we don't really have much to give away. So we'll give away something. How about that? We'll give away sure. something to one of the one of the questions or statements. We'll okay. randomly pick okay. one of them, and we'll give you maybe something Sneaky Dragon related. We'll give you some stickers or buttons. Or we'll think we'll think about it. Yeah, that's right. We have another show yet. We can announce something then. We sh we we sure can. You know what? We might give you a grease stick so that you can make your own Groucho mustache. <laughs> there you go. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> if we could mail you a cigar, we would. But I don't know if that's uh, if that's legal to do that. So you know, what what have you? We'll uh, we'll do something. Mm. We'll do something. You can. You just do it sneakily. You just write live mouse on the box. <laughs> no one will check it. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Uh, Dave has tips. mailed pro, a lot of odd things pro, in the mail. Pro tips. That's right. <laughs> so, so Dave, uh, let me ask you the question that I almost always ask you every episode, which is, hey, where are the Marx Brothers at this point? Where, where are they at this point? Well, What's going on? They've been retired for four years as an, as an act, okay. as the Marx Brothers act. Obviously, Chico, his, his life habits made it, you know, a constant need for him to always be working and he actually became like a band leader he traveled with an orchestra mm. and performed you know playing the piano and doing little bits entertaining bits and things like that and you know he went to england and he went to, around america at a time when it was starting to die out but there was still a market for you know big bands and band leaders to go down you know and go from dance places and things like that too let me let me ask you uh sound completely uh, incoherent, let, but, let me ask uh, you a question that uh, sure. you know I, I don't know the answer to which is really the kind of questions one should ask <laughs> um so nowadays uh yeah. you, you know you have the modern movies that are in the movie theater but sometimes you have rep houses that will play old movies did yeah. they have anything like that back in the day it once at once um, uh day at the races was yeah. out was there any way anyone could see that movie again or once it was out of theaters were they just done that's a good question. I mean, when we grew up, there were repertory theaters, or if you wanted to, you could start a film society and order, you know, like collected of money from members to be able to afford to bring in your own prints right. and sh show films. So you could have, say, if you went to university, you could start up your own little cinema club there and bring in movies. Uh, but I don't know if that was an option in the 40s. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Say. It's like once a movie was done, yeah. was there any way to see it or were you out of luck? 
and 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 I'm supposing then you know uh, they wouldn't be making yeah. any royalties off of previous previous movies in any way. So well, that, once you once it, you've made your mo- your money, you're mm-hmm. done. Whereas now, yeah. they would air on television. Sure. Uh, everyone would get a, a cut. And, uh, you know, if yeah. you had that kind of body of work, it would probably pay for itself over and over and you really wouldn't have to work anymore. Well, then you wonder if, like, that kind of archival sense of history is a fairly new part of our culture. Because it seems like in the past, it was very easy for them to get rid of old things, you know, when you think of... You know, the hippies in the in the early '60s buying. We Tiffany. got rid of the hippies now. Well, so they're thank not, goodness they're not around. But I'm just thinking of them buying like Tiffany lamps on the cheap in thrift stores and stuff like that. Ah. People were just like Tiffany lamps, blah, this old garbage that my grandma owned, throw away. And then you you know you're buying these beautiful works of art that are worth thousands and thousands of dollars now for you know dollars at the time because no one appreciated things that were that old. They wanted right. things that were new. And someone like Buster Keaton who was leave, storing his. His val, you know, his movies, all that was left of his life's work and his, in a carport in the heat, you know, all this nitrate, all this nitrate stock that was, you know, literally on the verge of completely right. immolating and, and, and all his work would have been lost to us. You know, after he was lucky enough that James Mason discovered a room in the house that no one knew was there. So it seems like it's just a weird time where people didn't think much about their past and just always about moving forward. So right. you wonder once, once it was in the past, it was over with, and no one, well, no one cared to if, think about it. If anymore. anyone uh, knows about that, curious, and if there were yeah. repertory houses or that kind of thing, it feels like comedy well, is mean, the like, kind of thing you can watch again. Like if you yeah, if you've gone sure. and you've watched, you know, uh, Night at the Opera once, mm-hmm. uh, then it you could watch it a second time sure. and still enjoy it. Sure, yeah. But you know, before television, there wasn't. You know, once television came, then you had this this need for for content. Whereas movie theaters, they were constantly making new films mm-hmm. in order to attract people to the theater, like. In the 30s, people went, on the average, went to the movies twice a week. Right. That was your average movie going for, you know, so that was a lot of people, go, you know, that's a lot of bums in the seats. It started to drop in the 40s. Yeah, it was mostly hobos. You're right. <laughs> but, you know, think about, like, um, Night of the Opera, for instance. All right. Where when they edited it, edited the film in order to make it more, uh, to take out the Italian references, to make <laughs> it more, make it more wartime friendly. Right. They edited the negative. They didn't take a print and edit the print down. They actually edited the negative and threw out uh, those parts of the film. So it's lost to us forever. Like yeah. that's how much they thought about these things. Like not at all. So I I just kind of wonder if if there was much, you know, they just kind of threw the movies in a big bit in a big closet and that was that was it for this them. This feels like the kind of thing that someone out there knows. Yeah. And sure. What they should do is let us know, and yeah. then we'll talk about it two episodes from now on the questions and answers show. Yeah, because so there was, you go. There's a there's there. I just started that ball rolling. It was a while ago that someone, I think, someone in Eastern Europe found an a print of of um, a Night of the Opera that has much of the Italian stuff in it, except for the opening scene, oh. the musical opening scene, which may it, and it not being there kind of maybe hints that it was not. Included in the release version at the time, so that mm-hmm. there was no, there was no like um, operatic beginning to the film, which would have been interesting because it would have kept it more in the in the tradition of Marx Brothers films, which have traditionally started with a sung, with a sung section and then moved into like just becoming a movie. Right. And it kind of starts like some sort of mini operetta, and you're like, what is this, Gilbert and Sullivan? And then everyone just starts talking normally. Right. Which is weird. It's kind of like the, that little mini sketch of them going into the manager's office where they all come in speaking in rhyme. Mm-hmm. And then halfway through it, this, the rhyme goes out the window. And it's just sort of a weird thing that obviously at the time was, was 
culturally, yeah, it's a conceit. If they're used to, if not a big are, deal. Yeah, people are used to plays and that's the kind of thing yeah. you're having a play. Yeah, yeah. So for us, as we're watching it now, we're kind of like, well, it's odd that they dropped that halfway through. Yeah. But to them, it just didn't matter. It was a convention, I guess, and no, and no one thought twice about it. Okay, so let's get yeah, back to Yeah, but nowadays, the... we don't mind guys shrinking and talking to ants. We're cool with that. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. No problem. That's right. If someone <laughs> snaps their fingers, half the world goes away. <laughs> we're, we're down with that. So, you know, we all absorb certain things and, well, sure, uh, and but, uh, cut a lot of slack. Sure, but even in terms of like editing, like if, a, if you brought a person from the 30s yeah. in, forward in time to our time and had them watch a movie, their neck would break. Because they wouldn't know what was going on. They would have well, no... Well, the 3D glasses would bother them, too. <laughs> But I'm just meaning they'd, things They'd like... be impressed with the comfort of the chairs. The chairs are very nice like a, Like a 1930s film, you have someone come up in a car. They yeah. get out of the car. They go to the door. They walk yes. into the door. They get into the... They have to show me pressing the, the button. You know, so everything is done. Whereas, you know, when you get to, like, you know, like something groundbreaking, like like a Buddha Souffle, the breath, uh, Breathless by Jean-Luc Godard, which is just like this movie that changed all that and just changed how cutting happened and, yeah. you know, made this movie so much faster. You know, and then you speed up that to through MTV <laughs> and stuff like that to now where we just, you know, so much that happens in films, we just assume without any need to re- reference and go back. And I just feel like if someone from the past came, watched a movie like that we watch nowadays without any trouble, yeah, they would just be like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Though, to be fair, we'd also be have very, a we would also be very impressed by their uh, ability to time travel. <laughs> I'm saying we brought them forward. Oh. Yeah. They're not impressive at all. They're just You saying, know what? Then, then we're amazing. They're, too, just, a, so they're just a goof. But speaking of time traveling, <laughs> let's go back to the past. Let's go back to the past. Where we're saying they've retired for four years. They've retired. The exception they retired. of uh, Chica, who is now uh, band leading. He's working like crazy. All right. Oh, here's the thing. There had to be someone amongst the many producers who approached the Marx Brothers about being the Marx Brothers again in a movie. There just had to be that. So there's many of them approaching them. But one of them had to like hit them at that sweet little moment right. where Chico really needs the money. Yep. Grocho's maybe feeling his career isn't going as well as he hoped. Right. And Harpo is, you know, tired of golfing or whatever he's doing. And uh, the lucky guy was this person named David Lowe. Happened to ask them at the right time. He came to them with a project and, and they were ready. And he was actually the son of Marcus Lowe, who was one of the founders of MGM. And, uh, and he actually had left an executive uh, position at MGM to become an executive producer, to, uh, like a, or sorry, to become an independent producer. So Lowe persuaded the brothers to consider a parody of Casablanca and other Bogart films. So that was the kind of conceit starting that they started with. Uh, even though at that point, Casablanca was three years old. So he came out in 42 and he's approached him in 45. So you'd think, you know, and we're just talking about that, that how quickly things moved on. Was there much, much what, was there much appetite for new, for like a new version? But I think that's why they're yeah. parroting other ones. So to have and have not, for instance, what came out in, which I think came out in 45. So those films, you know, you could, we're a little more recent, you could maybe mine those for, for jokes, whatever. So as I said, four years had passed since the big store. And although Groucho would, would have been loath to admit it, his plans for a post-Marx Brothers career had not really panned out. Had he been in any films? He had not been in any movies. Did he audition for movies and not get in? I'm not sure. Okay. But he was not, he didn't do another film until 1947, which was Copacabana. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Everyone have a little cold, so it's going to... Yeah, we're both uh, we're both rocking the uh, <laughs> the the great uh, cold of uh, 2018. If you're listening to that's, this in the future, that's right. Yeah. So he had hoped to move into radio in a vehicle developed by Irving Brecker, which was called the Flotsam Family. Mm-hmm. And however, sponsors balked at the idea of Groucho playing a straight role in a in a like. So instead of being like kind of a wacky character, he was just going to be kind of a straight sort of sitcom situation. All right. And him as the the sort of head of the family. Instead, the show was developed with William Bendix in mind. 
and the location of the show was changed to Brooklyn, and it became the life of Riley, and it became a very successful radio right. show, and then a television very show. Very successful, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, like I said, he wouldn't appear in a film until 1947's Copacabana. So whether he was just in, he was writing a lot, he was doing a lot of writing articles and things of that, like sort of humorous articles and mm-hmm. things. But he wasn't, and I don't know. I think you know he wasn't really thinking about movies. I don't think he enjoyed doing movies that much. I think he wanted to get into radio where it was more, you know, sort of easier. You didn't sure, have to hang around easier, as much, yeah. and you know, you had a weekly show. If you could get a weekly show, you did your couple hours a week of, of work and then yeah. you just you know you're home you don't have it. to put on makeup you don't have to hunch over for the whole time mm-hmm. and Groucho even though he kind of ran through the wives was a real family man like he really liked loved his family the problem was he he didn't um didn't always get along with the women oh he was oh, sorry I'm just gonna turn on my phone everybody sure uh, my by the way is that the ghost of Groucho calling <laughs> I hope so sheesh how dare you say I love my wives my <laughs> My wife is uh, sending me a, a, a litany of, of Disney gifts, so I'm just going to put that <laughs> over there. She's has a moment, I guess, a little bit of free time. Time to send me a gift storm. Oh, that's very sweet. It's nice. You love your wife as well. That's what you had in common with Groucho. I do love Except her. you're stuck with one. I That's fine. That's how I like it. Yeah. And you had two brothers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe you have another I brother had... that we don't know about that was not as funny. <laughs> We hit him yeah. in the crawl space. So um, he was, what he mostly did was he just did guest appearances, like on radio shows. Sure. He'd show up. And then he did tours of army bases, which is oh, admirable, nice. of course, yeah. at the time. And it's, so it's not that he needed the money, though. Like, he was set for life. Mm-hmm. It's just that he'd spent his entire career. I mean, he was, of all the Marx Brothers, he was the one who really wanted to be an entertainer. He's the one who became a singer kind of of his own of his own will, you know, he was the one who ran to the audition mm-hmm. and got into, into, uh, you know, singing and went through all that, the trouble and, and terrible times of being a, you know, starting a career as a, as a vaudeville singer. Oh, and, sure. Yeah. You know, getting, you know, abandoned twice, getting, you know, deserted twice in two different places where, you know, his stars, the person, his partner ran off with the money and left him stranded. So, you know, he, you know, he's kind of, you know, he sort of, he needed that sort of, he wanted applause. And that's nothing wrong about that. I don't think it meant that his, he had a character defect. I just think that that was a part of his character. That no, he, no, that's what gets you satisfaction. Yeah. That's right. If you're a musician, you want an audience, you want to play for the audience, you sure. want to write music. Sure. If you're a comedian, you want to write comedy, and you don't know what the comedy is until you see it in front of uh, an audience. It's not complete. So you yeah. need that audience for sure. Sure. Yeah. And so, as I said, Chico, of course, needed the money. Yep. Uh Though he probably still has had a love of music, and so that sure. was that I'm, itch was being scratched. Yeah, I think he had a certain certain love for it, but I think a lot of it was just mechanical for him. Okay, I I find that uh, if that is the case, that's kind of sad because he brings such joy to his musical he does, performances. He does. It just feels like oh, if that was not real, just that's a, one well, good acting. He was a performer. Yeah, it's it's a performer, but also yeah, it just seemed like he was having fun. I don't I don't think um, James Brown always was so tired he couldn't get off one knee. And needed someone to come and put a cape on him. You know, I think that sometimes that was part of the performance. Okay. I don't hope that doesn't disappoint you. No, I, you know what? I, I think he probably was tired. <laughs> I can't see him doing that whole act and not being, I think that's one of the most realistic things in that whole act. <laughs> it's like, yeah, at the end of all that, right. wouldn't you be tired? You're probably right. And it's rumored that at the time he was heavily indebted to gangsters. Uh, who are we talking about? Uh, James Ch- Brown? Chico. Oh, Chico. Chico. So, okay. Yeah, I'm like, just switch to know, a James Brown cast. He really needed the money and, and, uh, <sighs> he told Groucho, uh, you're wasting the best years of our lives. 
he felt like they still, you know, there's still call, there's still call for them to be the Marx Brothers, sure. and let's let's squeeze well, this stone. He's not, he's not wrong. And Harpo, his attitude was, whatever you guys think is best, I'll, I'll do it. He didn't actually, he didn't really super enjoy doing the movies either. Like, you know, it was just sort of boring to them. I think, you know, like doing vaudeville, as much as it was a grind, it was probably also exciting that you got into a town, you found places to stay, sure. you went to the theater, you kind of scoped it out. Went on stage into this place that had you had no idea how they were going to spawn to you. Oh yeah, do your show. You might be a huge success. You might have some some hitches in your in your act. You might have to smooth some stuff out, and then a couple of days later, you might you know, might be a week there. You might be a couple of days, and you're gone. You're onto another town and stuff. Whereas a movie, you're just sitting around. You come in at seven in the morning, and you're there at three o'clock. You say a couple of lines. Yeah, and it I, wasn't just it just wasn't enjoyable for them. It didn't it have just that feels spontaneity. Like, uh, it's weird. It's weird the idea that Harpo would think that it was boring because like Harpo, uh, you know, it's like you read the script and Harpo's like, oh, now I have to do trapeze work, <laughs> uh, a lot of it. Oh, now I have mm. to uh, ride a horse and do these horse stunts. Yeah. Oh, now I've got to run well, on top of a train. He probably and, didn't uh, enjoy that, but I mean, by the time he got to Go West, it really he wasn't really running on a train. It was someone else running for him. Right. There the are big some story. There's other people doing the running. There are some stunts, like even in this one where he's doing some tumbles and whatever. That for a man of his age, yeah, that's yeah. still quite quite impressive sure. Uh, to do. Sure. Other factors that attracted the Marxists to 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 Low Steel was they got a participation in the profits as co-producers of the film. Good stuff. And they would share ownership of the film's copyright with Low. Okay. So basically, it would be their film. So the Marx Brothers and, and David Lowe set up a production company called Loma Vista Films, which was basically established simply to produce one Marx Brother movie, which would be A Night in Casablanca. Uh, and because the brothers were heavily invested in the picture, there would be a tour. Okay. There's no way around that. So the original script was written by Joseph Fields, who was a veteran of the Ziegfeld Follies and a, a son of Lou Fields, who was a part of a famous vaudeville team called Weber and Fields. And he wrote a parody of Casablanca with names like Humphrey Bogus and Lo and Behold, even though Lauren Bacall was not in. Yeah. But because he's drawing yeah. from other movies, it's, it was okay. I guess you can think of a funny one for Ingrid Bergman. It's pretty, pretty hard to you think about it while I keep talking. Sure. Ig- an ignorant burger man <laughs> who keeps eating hot dogs and uh, gets told that's not a burger. There you go. <laughs> when you should be writing for Mad Magazine. Oh, you do. You there do. you are. Uh, <laughs> the script was replaced was mostly replaced by new material from the Marx Brothers. They kind of a- the added best. some stuff, and other writers were brought in to rework Field's draft, including this guy named Howard Harris, who you can look him up; you will not find anything about him. And Sidney Zelinka, who would go on to a very successful comedy writing career, uh, writing for TV sitcoms like uh, The Honeymooners, Car Fifty Four, Where Are You, Sergeant Bilko, and plenty of others. Like bewitched and all this stuff. You oh, know, he's, that's a, that's that's a good resume. That's a good career. Yeah, yeah. Another guy named Roland Kibbe, who uh, had been writing gags for Fred Allen and Groucho for radio, was brought on board. Um, and he would go on. Strangely, he wouldn't really stay stay stick with comedy. He would find more success as a writer of TV mystery shows. Oh, he wrote like wrote for Columbo, wrote McCloud. He created was a uh, creator of It Takes a Thief, which is basically the right. the Hitchcock thing, but turned into a TV show. You know, uh, that's Sir Robert Wagner. What's that? Did that Sir Robert Wagner that show? It takes a thief. No, uh, oh, that's a good question. I know he was in the heart to heart. Uh, it's an earlier, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. We could look it up, and yet we're not going to. No, it's fine. By the way, I'm not a hundred percent sure that you you should call Columbo a mystery show. I almost I almost think that's more. Yeah, you're right. More it's a comedy or a drama or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not a mystery show. It's a puzzle show. I guess it's a puzzle is how 
he's going to f- solve the case that and, and extract a confession. Yeah, he's going to break this person down. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's more of a psychological <laughs> torture. It is really. Yeah. yeah, it's very. It's very, with a lot of jokes. Yeah, a lot of big yeah. jokes. In and McLeod too has it has a sense of humor too as well. Yeah. You know, the chief McLeod. But there's usually with Columbo, there's always like one running just straight comedy mm. track of like the dog needs to go to the vet and there's something <laughs> wrong with it and you're yeah, gonna, yeah. you're gonna have a whole bunch of situations for that. Yeah. Uh, and he was responsible for the final draft, so he did the, okay. uh, and which I think, and I said it, I think his predilection for mystery and mood over comedy kind of effect, affected the movie in a way. Hmm. Most importantly, Frank Tashlin was brought in. He was a former animator at Warner Brothers and Disney, and he worked a lot of places. He was a fiery character, by the way. He worked all over, and basically, he, any job he left, he left because he had in a fight with someone. Oh, okay. So as uh, an animator, so like when he got mad, like a swear balloon would appear. Yeah, over his head, over his head yeah. yes. Uh, and he was brought in to provide visual gags for Harpo. So he was, he was responsible for the, are you holding up this building? Yeah, yeah. Gag and the uh, glasses that are actually for blowing bubbles. Yeah, yeah. There was some really good There are some really gags, good yeah. things. And he would go on to become a screenwriter. He, was, he wrote uh, for Bob Hope and Red Skelton. And then he went on to direct movies. He directed Martin and Lewis. He directed six Jerry Lewis films. He directed one of my favorite um, musicals, which is uh, The Girl Can't Help It, a very early rock and roll Gene okay. Mansfield vehicle with uh, Little Richard and and uh, Gene Vincent. And yes. Oh, it's quite the variety of stuff. All yeah, right. yeah. He uh, and like most uh, most comic directors of that time, kind of fell apart in the '60s. And his career ended around in the 60s for whatever reason. All right. The not funny decade, I guess. That's what it was. <laughs> well, I mean, that's when, that's when TV's kicking in. So that's, for sure. that's really taken over. Yeah. 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 It's a different situation. Yeah. And I was thinking about this the other day. And maybe this is a good time to bring it up. Because I was thinking about the spectacle. And this is a problem for MGM. Spectacle does not equal funny. Like, the bigger you make something does not make it funnier. Are you telling me you don't like a mad, 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 mad world? I really don't like a mad, 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 That's mad, That's what mad I world. think you're telling me. Yeah, I don't like that movie at a all. A lot of people do. Some people are, I like know. huge fans of that. Yeah, but I think a lot uh, of those movies... But that is very much spectacle, yeah. Yeah, but I think for, a, a gen- a huge, for my generation of people, that movie is associated with a particular time of year, which is, for us was New Year's, New Year's Eve. And I always seem to be on, on some channel, okay. for whatever reason, maybe because... At the TV station, they were celebrating, and it was okay to put a three-hour movie on. Yeah, and you it kills you, a lot of time, so you can drink. You can get in the cups with your with your friends and yeah. have some fun. Meanwhile, you know this this movie, this really noisy, endless film of smashing things goes on. And also, there's so many people fills, that you're gonna like something that's fills the- that's one thing. Like when you're talking about the '60s, sorry to tangent a little bit. I think one of the reasons Groucho did did so well was his style of comedy that kind of rebellious yeah. quick-witted thing sure played very very well on talk shows which mm. then yeah. kind of rose into prominence then sure you know if you got a witty guy sitting at a chair who can just go 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 <laughs> like groucho could, yeah. he yeah. was he was designed for the new for sure uh style of tv yeah for sure and i just say that because the 60s i think started to because they were trying to compete against television they didn't want to go small they did what they did the right. opposite they went big which so is, they tried to make the comedies really big. That's right. And like I say, to me, spectacle does not equal funny. Well, that's sort of a situation that we have in modern times where television is very good right now. Like the good TV is very, very good. Yeah. And so movies uh, seem to be saying we've got to have 3D and all these bells and whistles and, yeah. and, what, and what have you. Yeah. And as much as I do like the the Marvel movies, that's really what they're, what they're doing they're doing like we're going to do stuff that you could never do on tv just throw money at it yeah. so much money yeah yeah meanwhile these great stories are being told on on television sure that's true it's true there's some people still still working in a small way but it's it's much harder obviously yeah 
So, like I said, the Marxists had a tour. They toured elements of the film in August of 1945, including the dressing scene, mm-hmm. the dueling scene, yeah, the Harpo Chico misunderstanding pantomime scene, <laughs> okay, and the packing unpacking routine. Uh, they toured the Pacific Coast and at Harpo's insistence, mostly performed for service audiences. They started at Camp Elliott Naval Base in San Diego on August the 12th. Then a couple of days later, they started a week at San Diego's Orpheum Theater and finished the tour at the T&D Theater in Oakland. So August 27th, 1945 was the final performance by the Marx Brothers on stage. Hmm. That would be the last time they performed together as the Marx Brothers. So you're saying they performed for the troops is what you're saying? Often, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I wonder if that's a, I wonder if that's a good thing. Like if you, if you've got like a group of people and you are the entertainment that they can see. Sure. Yeah. They're just so thrilled to see. <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. that would uh, goose things up a little could, bit. And could not be. give you a realistic. Could be. Though, you know, maybe they also do have that kind of everyman, uh, perspective that, uh, that they could, they could really use. Hmm. But here's the thing. It was during the tour that many of the initial jokes were thrown out and much of the material reworked. Most of the parody elements were, moved, were removed and the yeah. characters were renamed. The original title, Adventures in Casablanca, was also changed this time to something more familiar, familiarly uh, Marxian. Yeah. So, A Night in Casablanca. How uh, did that go over well with everybody? Because that feels a little weird to me that they, they went back to using the, you know, the exact yeah. start of like another one of their movies in their title. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I would prefer they went back to their Paramount naming st- strategy. Which is? Uh, s- silly. Yeah, usually something that's non-existent or, or or implies antics. Yes. You know, so monkey business or horse feathers, you know. But uh yeah, I think the I think the a night and a day thing worked for two films, but why they kept trying to ring that change again, I don't know. Also, it didn't seem like it was a night. Because like at the circus was originally called the day at the circus. Yeah. And it, like if they'd kept doing that. Yeah. A night at the a day at the a night at the a day at the then okay. Yeah, all right. This is what you're into. I'm fine. But it just it just feels strange. Yeah. That kind of oh, hmm. All right. You're borrowing that from yourself. Sure. I guess but you this can. film borrows a lot from from it from itself. Sure. So we can talk if about If you've been gone away go. for like four years, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. you know, you want to be as much yourself when you come back as possible. So uh, by the end of August, by the end of the tour, Groucho thought that they had the makings of a really good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the caveat, and he wrote this to a friend, that the director, Archie Mayo, not screwed up. <laughs> he felt that was where, where the film had the, it's, you know, that's, he was kind of putting it into the hands of this director. Sure. We, we have a tight script. We have a, we've tightly plotted everything. You know, we've got this tight routines. We're ready, you know, we're ready to film. One of the worst decisions made during filming was to get rid of Harpo's wig. Someone in the makeup department decided Harpo would look better without a wig, so they dyed his real hair, curled it, and filled it with fluff. Mm. An even worse decision was presented to Harpo during the production. David Lowe offered to pay him $55,000 to shout the single line of dialogue, Murder. Mm. Harpo refused. It's strange that no matter what, what thing you have established, someone will always come along and say, you know what would be better? If you didn't do this thing that makes your character so interesting. Yeah. You know what would be really good? Let's ruin your character. That would be great. Well, it depends. Harpo talks. Yeah, if, you, uh, if you're going for the short term and you can advertise this as this is the film Harpo talks in, yeah. you're going to get people to come to see that. Yeah. But that will ruin it for the future. Mm-hmm. You know. It's, and, yeah. uh, what's, uh, what's the name of the actress? Oh, this is so silly that I can't. Pull her name uh, from Sound of Music, the lead. Julie Andrews. Right. You can have a movie where she's going to be topless, and everyone will go, "Hey, we're yeah. going to go see that movie." Yeah. But then, oh, yeah. Then you feel sad afterwards, and mm. no one feels good. Yeah. But 
people go to see it, and you saw it, and now are you happy you saw it? No, yeah. no, you're not. It didn't even go topless. It was more like boob windows, which is really weird. I I saw that movie when I was a teenager. Okay, <laughs> it was you know everyone was everyone's parents rented it for whatever reason. I have no idea. You know why they rented it? Do you think for that reason? Yeah, you get to see Mary Poppins popping. I, I guess, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Okay, kids, here we're just gonna leave this on top of the television. You can watch it later. So the actual shooting uh, for the film was delayed by an industry strike. So the Marxists rehearsed at a place called General Service Studios hmm. from the 18th of September and on until shooting began on October the 3rd. And it was a pretty quick shoot. It took about two months. By November 23rd, they saw an impressive rough cut. And Groucho actually believed it would be better than the last few pictures they had done. Sure. Archie Mayo, the director of A Night, at, a night in Casablanca, may have been brought on board, this is my theory anyway, may have been brought on board during the original intention to produce a parody of Casablanca. As a director of such films as The Petrified Forest and The Black Legion, both featuring Humphrey Bogart, he was familiar with the milieu of dramatic crime films and the oeuvre and style of Humphrey Bogart. So I feel so he was kind of brought in with the idea that he can make this look like Casablanca. He can make this look and feel like a a gangster movie. But when the filmmakers did a volt face when they did an about face i prefer the french term though for some reason uh and took the film in a more nonsensical marxian direction i think male directing style didn't fit quite as well mm. into the movie so he because he paced his film slowly and added technical elements like dolly shots and dramatic lighting that are mere distractions than what should be the straight ahead direction sure. for a comedy and that you can see an instance of that in the dueling scene and in the unpacking scene unpacking packing scene where he slows down the action I think too much, and okay. it kind of those scenes drag a little bit. They're not quite as peppy as they should be. And those sort of things where you feel like the actors are having to like, you know, s- slow down. They're like turning around in order to to keep up, you know, to keep up with each other or to slow down with each other. That would be a shame in that you know they spent so long rehearsing and getting yeah. the timing right, and then yeah. having the timing botched. Sure. In that way. Sure. So at the first premiere, the film ran a not tight 113 minutes, leaving the audience and the Marx Brothers enthousi- unenthusiastic at best. Well, how long is the film? 85 minutes. Is it? Yeah. Just 85 minutes. All mm-hmm. right. Uh, Groucho was right. furious with Mayo. He believed that he had ruined their tightly constructed movie. Okay. Uh, the film was edited down to 85 minutes, but as usual, the misguided concentration on the story over the comedy meant that several comedy bits were lost on the cutting room floor, including a scene with Groucho at the Desert Inn Hotel and a continuation of the meeting scene between Groucho and Chico that further explains Chico's camel taxi business. Mm. In the film, it just kind of stops, and you're kind of like, oh, they set up all this camel taxi stuff. What are they doing with it? Oh, nothing. Okay. Uh, the Merckxes had in the past twice discussed distribution deals with United Artists, once with Sam Harris, and who had been their uh, Broadway producer. In between uh, Paramount and, and MGM, they looked at starting a distribution deal with him where they produce their own movies and distribute them through through United Artists. And that happened again later on that they that they looked into. And they may whether they're serious or not, they may have just been doing these as ways to leverage con, you know better contracts out of the right. studios. In both cases, deals fell through. But A Night in Casablanca was therefore their first film to finally be distributed by the Always the Bridesmaid, Never the Bride, United Artists. So this and Love Happy were both United Artists distributions. Okay. Because that's what United Artists basically was, was just a clearinghouse for independent productions. That's how it, why it was created. And that's how it worked up until a certain point when they decided that they were going to be a studio, a traditional studio, and then they made Heaven's Gate, and then they died. <laughs> All right, so there you go. So I don't know if you want to say anything about that before we start into the movie proper. Uh, no, I think we can generally go... Well, because this involved camels, 
Um, uh, what is the name of the uh, the other Marx Brothers podcast? That's uh, that's a uh, the, the Marx Brothers Council. Oh, those the Fab Fab folks. Yes, Fab folks. Uh, they had a link uh, to a Mark Hamill tweet. Oh, and uh, I follow Mark Hamill as well. Yes, so I would have seen it anyway, but I want to give them a shout out to that, and also <laughs> a shout out just because they deserve shout out. But uh, he was talking about meeting Groucho, okay, and so this relates a little bit to that. Sure, where he was saying like uh, he was a, he was a, a little little kid and he saw Groucho and he was so excited and went mm. up to Groucho and I'm going to paraphrase. Uh, he said, "Ask Groucho, can I have your autograph?" And Groucho went, "You don't already have my autograph." He went, uh, "No, well that's one strike against you." <laughs> like, so uh, what's your name? And he was so flustered, he's like, uh, uh, "Oh, I don't even have a name, huh?" Well, that's two strikes you're almost out of the game kid it's like uh i'm i'm mark hamill mark camel ah you're not camel you you don't have a hump but don't worry about it when you get to be my age you will (laughs) and that's the mark hamill uh, groucho story that's great then you got an autograph from uh from groucho marks beautiful yep camel related and some great jokes yeah Yeah. that's good business yeah uh to do with a kid it's great Mm, that's wonderful uh so the film opens with a credit sequence over a tracking shot showing the exterior of the Hotel Casablanca. Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful opening for, yeah. I think, a, you know, it sets a tone. It depends, there's two schools of thought with comedy to me. It's like, either one, get to it. Yeah. Just get to the comedy. Sure. Stop messing around. And the other one is, set the tone and make it look dramatic so that when we play the comedy, it's yeah. going to be more impactful. And they decide to go with that, for that sure. route and play for a sure. lot of drama yeah. before we get like one funny thing. There's a lot <laughs> of setup. setup. Yeah. And like, we get it. This is my feeling, but please. Continue. I'm not a huge, uh, gee, I forgot to write down his name, but I'm not a huge fan of the music for this film, the, uh, the uh, score. I don't I think it's too dramatic. Okay. And kind of under, it's, Kind of too heavy a lot of times. Yeah, maybe if you were, if you were doing the original idea, which is the straight parody of Casablanca. Yeah, yeah, yeah set it all up. Mm. Now we're really gonna like do beat for beat, but that's not what what they end up doing. Yeah. So obviously the shot establishes the locale. Yep. We see a sign with both English and French, water and O, French for water, and we see camels as part of an excursion tour company. And what's interesting is you see Chico sitting at a little his little kind of. Uh, booth with mm-hmm. an umbrella over him doing paperwork i think he's doing paperwork so they could hide the fact that it wasn't chico but just to stand in yeah. dress like chico as the camera did this panning shot and then the camera comes upon the outdoor cafe where it focuses on a waiter approaching a man sitting at a table mm. he gives the man a drink the man signs the bill the waiter leaves the man sips his drink suddenly he tugs at his collar oh so common and then falls to the ground I was waiting for it. Unfortunately, no one goes up to him and goes, he's dead, but almost the same. Yeah. Uh, this serviceman. is not a million miles from how every Columbo starts. <laughs> yes, there you go. Yeah. A serviceman, lieutenant, or as we like to say here in Canada, lieutenant, Pierre Delmar, played by Charles Drake, who I think is terrible in this film. Oh, all by right. The way. I think he's just so awful. But what's funny is I like him in Harvey. He plays Dr. Sanderson. He's one of the people who works at the, the institution where... where where um, Jimmy Stewart's Jimmy character Stewart is, goes, yeah. it's supposed to be his sister's trying to like, get him put in there and then she starts changing her mind when she realizes what she's doing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he's quite good in that movie. I don't know why. He feels like it's a very stiff, totally different. Yeah. He feels like a real stiff in this movie. Uh, but he's sitting at a, t- a nearby table with a woman, uh, Annette Bernard, played by Lois Collier. Uh, he gets up and examines the man and pronounces him dead. Yeah, really fast. He's dead. 
Yeah, it's it's always strange to me. Like you know, back in okay, if you had someone who just fell down in a restaurant now, yeah, you do a little work on him, sure. do a little mouth to mouth, do a little of this. But yeah. back then, it really felt like you just like touched his hand, dead, nothing more we can do. Yeah, walk right. away. They don't want to start CPR, then you can't stop. I don't even know if they did. They have CPR back then. This seems like a really dumb question. But like, uh, what yeah. would a, what would a doctor do when someone falls on? Do they just? Hmm? I guess there you go. Oh yeah. Yeah, life's cheap back, back, <laughs> too back bad. now. Too, too bad. Yep. Um, CPR. Credence Clearwater Revival. Well, sure. The camera. <laughs> so then I think Annette Bernard just runs. By the way, I, I think Dave just proved that he is a dad. <laughs> she runs to the hotel. But yes. I think the reason she runs there is so the camera can pan over to we see you. So pans to the waiter who yeah. served, served him Kurt. We'll learn later, played by Frederick Gearman. Sharing, he shares like a little suspicious glance with another sure. waiter, Emile, played by a fellow named Harrow Malor. They then both look significantly at another man and woman who are standing by their table. This is Count Pfefferman, as they call him through the film. Sure. Pfefferman, so they say, Count. Uh, we'll also learn his, he's actually Heinrich Stubel. Played by Sig Ruman, back for his trifecta. Of Marx Brothers films. Oh, what were the other two? Uh, Night of the Opera. He plays the opera manager. So he did both the night movies. And then he's in A Day of the Races. He plays the uh, Austrian, or the Viennese doctor who comes So he to went him. night, day, night. Yes. Good night for and him. day. Night and day. Uh, and Beatrice Reiner, uh, who's played by Lisette Veria, a Romanian actress. And she was in two films in her career. Only two. A Night in Casablanca. Yeah. Another one called Trenul Fantoma, which I think is probably... Romanian, because I don't know. Fantoma, probably ghost. Sounds about right. I, I don't know. Cut to the police station where a fez-wearing Captain Brizard, the prefect of police, played by a guy named Dan Seymour, which just, just kills me. Because I thought, if I saw this person, I just think, oh, yeah, he's like some guy who's like a, you know, Arab, an Arab yeah. guy or whatever. Like. But no, he's born in Chicago. He's, and yeah. He's, well, you should know that. He was eating a piece of deep dish pizza at the time. In the movie. So and he that's, plays, that's clue number one. He plays almost exactly the same character in To Have and Have Not, ah, the Humphrey Bogart film. Maybe yeah. it's a sequel. <laughs> so he picks up the phone to learn that the manager of the hotel, Casablanca, has been killed. The governor is dismayed. This is the third manager to be killed in the last six months. Yep. Bizarre orders that all likely suspects be rounded up. Which is very Casablanca. Yes. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Cue street scene as police and cheat. Did you like that? Cue. Q street I scene. Did. I enjoyed that very much. Thank you. Q street scene as police and shady characters cross back and forth. A policeman, Eugene Borden, also has a role in To Have and Have Not. Okay. Comes upon Rusty Harpo, who is leading finally, against the Finally, let me just say, when I saw that, finally. When you saw Harpo? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Because you could actually, I would think, if you if you walked into this movie and thought, like, it's a Marx Brothers movie, right? But by, by, by about this point, you might be turning to the person you're next to and just go... Are, Did, are we yeah. are, are we this, here on the right night? Is this the, is, is this, this a Marx? Because I haven't seen a funny thing yet, or and no one sang. He didn't. There's enjoy. no aspects of anything. There wasn't yeah. a funny credit sequence with yeah. cartoon <laughs> characters. This doesn't look like any Marx Brothers movie I've ever seen. Yeah. But yeah. then but Harpo that, shows up. Harpo shows up. He's leaning against the building. Uh, the policeman scornfully asks if he is holding up the building, and Rusty nods yes. But the policeman brusquely pulls him away. And the entire structure falls down. Okay. It's a great gag, by the way. Okay, let's just say yeah. that's one of the best gags. If you're doing a best of Marx Brothers, yeah. Harpo gags, this is in it. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah. Here's the problem. Okay. You have just sent sent me the most dry opening, oh, like <laughs> the most straight opening. Yeah. And then you've given me the most the biggest reality breaking 
thing. Yeah. He yeah. might as well be flying around at this point, right? <laughs> like he's... Why is he holding up a building? Why is he holding up a building? Exactly. Yeah. So what you get there is like, oh, I get what's going to happen. Yeah. These guys are all going to be super straight. The Marx Brothers are going to be super crazy. Yeah. We're going to see these two worlds meeting. Yeah. Uh, especially Harpo. This is going to be bananas. Here it comes. I'm in. Here we go. Nothing like that for the rest of the yeah. movie. Oh, he's a valet again? Yes! <laughs> A valet who somehow can hold up a building and you know in his crazy magic, uh, and then like goes to that. It was just like a an unrelated yeah. joke, which is a great joke. Yeah. But yeah, make him that guy. Yeah. Yeah. So so later on, he's just like trying to beat someone up and just flailing around. It's like no, you can. Uh, yeah. Totally, there was a there was a problem. There. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody- but it is a great like it the building falling down. Yeah. Is amazing looking. Yeah, it is. It's an actual building. Yes, it actually has structure. It to looks it. dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. Yeah, it's not, it does it not like a pile of wood. If this was in a Buster Keaton sideways. movie, you'd go, yeah, that seems wow. right. Yeah, uh, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's sure. great. No, it's a great gag. Yeah, if it, they just, it, it's, it's a gag so good, it's, it can't be lived up to for the rest of the movie with anything else that Harpo does. Well, really, well, I do like him a lot in this film. So I do too. Just, just, just but there, there's, but yeah, nothing, there's nothing as, as, as crazy. You as started that. with your best joke. And for for separate reasons, I was wa- I watched the beginning of Animal Crackers, well, the entrance of the Professor Harpo's character in Animal Cracker, Crackers, and I was like, oh, this is so much better to me. Like, it's so much better having him come in as this as this impish character who you know blows smoke bubbles, puts his his foot in in uh, Captain Spaulding's hat, grabs a gun, scares the guests, shoots at a clock, you know, all these things yeah. that happen in the seconds, you know, and uh, also shows off his butt to great effect in that sequence as well. Yeah, it's just so uh, it's so fun, and then you watch this film, and it starts off very dryly. That is a great gag. I just I just love it. But immediately after that great gag, it goes back to we cut back to Captain Brizard questioning the hotel staff. Yeah, doesn't anyone just want? I mean, sorry, so it's, it's such a realistic thing. You want to go? Yeah, this guy was holding up a wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, who's did, this guy? So did, did people do it in shifts? <laughs> like later on, Larry would come by, and he like put his his palm on the you know his hand against the wall, and then Rusty mm-hmm. could leave. And then later on, someone Steve yeah, came by. It's and he, the little Dutch boy. Yeah, of, uh, lo- he's yeah. the load bearing. Everyone, marks. everyone had. Yeah. A, we got, we got some. We got to hold up this building. Like we have no choice. I don't know why this policeman wasn't in on it. Yeah, and then he was That's told me. you got to hold up this movie. He was new because, to town. Uh, you got to like support it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we're uh, the governor is also there with Brizard as he's questioning the staff. Sure, he is. Annette Bernard is also there taking notes. Yeah, she asked Brizard and the governor to meet with uh, Lieutenant Delmar. Delmar. By the way, the most American-sounding Frenchman you will ever meet. Sure. Tells his story. Howdy, y'all. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm French, Bonjour, y'all. everyone. <laughs> Parlez-vous? Yeah. During... Rouge, bleu, vert. These colors don't run. <laughs> During the war, he was ordered to fly a cargo plane loaded with Nazi loot, jewelry, gold, and stolen paintings. Del- Delmar couldn't stand the idea, or Delmar couldn't stand the idea of these... Items leaving French territory, so he crash-landed in Casablanca. However, by the time he was able to get back to the plane, the stolen items were gone. Hmm. Delmar suspects that the treasure is somewhere in the Hotel Casablanca. But now that it is under French control, he hopes finding this treasure will help him clear his name. Hmm. Is the plot here. Right. That's part of the plot. That's one of the plots. Well, what I liked was that the the guy he was talking to went... Uh, we don't care about clearing your name. Yeah, yeah. And as the audience, I wanted to go, neither do we. <laughs> Why? Because he's not compelling with his wooden acting? 
The governor and Captain Brizard are not sympathetic. Yeah. Believing that Delmar is acting in his own interest, they pointedly turn their their backs on him and he leaves. It's true, they do. They just yeah. turn their backs now, on him. Now wait a second, just just the logic of this is that okay, so he was he was uh, flying the art out, crashed the plane, uh to not bring the art out. Yeah. So his name is what now? Like what do people think? He stole the art? Is that what they think? And so his yeah, name is sure. bad? Yeah, yeah, I don't see how he looks bad in this. Yeah. It's like, not clear to me. You did not deliver the Nazi art. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> it got stolen. That seems about right. Yeah. You don't look like you're rich now, so I don't think you stole it. <laughs> well, um, I don't think that game. was the, the. I don't think that was the plan. But apparently, your name is ruined uh, by crashing a Nazi plane. Okay. <laughs> All right. Just didn't follow that too much. Yes, no one does. Cut to Count Pfefferman in his room. <laughs> there is a knock on the door, and Kurt, the waiter who served the poisoned drink, enters. He brings a letter to Pfefferman, who pulls out a Nazi codebook and begins to decode the message. Mm. He glances at his watch and calls for his valet, Rusty. Aha! Uh-huh. Rusty is in another room where he has put together a somewhat ingenious shoe polishing system. Right. Okay. I'm okay. Okay. So this is a big problem to me. Okay. All right. So we're now we're now reintroducing Rusty, who we just saw. We haven't seen Groucho. We haven't seen uh, a Chico aside from like a little bit of hat, yeah. or whatever. But like this is just a, this is an introduction scene. It's yeah. like who's this guy? Yeah. Oh, he's this he's this crazy inventor. <laughs> he just he, he wants to do things in a he's a he's a lazy guy. He wants to like do things fast and weird. And it's like oh that's kind of delightful. But that is in no way the magic man who was holding up a wall a few seconds earlier. Yeah. This is not the same guy. Yeah. It doesn't work. You gotta let you can only establish you can only have the 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 first reveal of a character once. Yeah. And so. You know, no, no, like what you need is the, is the mean guy possibly saying, uh, I need all my shoes done at once. And like, huh, do it now. And it's like, okay. Then he goes off and he has to figure out a way. And he's the kind of guy that figures out a way to do things. Yeah. But this way it just looks like he's a little imp that likes doing things in a weird way. It's like, it's not what, that's not what you've just set up. Yeah. I don't mind that though. I'm Mm -hmm. okay. I'm okay with that. All right. I'm okay. Cause I think, because I think with characters like the Marx Brothers, you can have continuity from film to film. So, you know, you've established, their various character traits through through their filmography. So I don't I don't mind if they're going back into their older films to dip into the well of per, of tr- personality traits. That, mm-hmm. So it doesn't really bother me. It just feels like you're introducing this guy twice. I I guess. I mean, they do kind of want to have their cake and eat it too, in the sense that, um, you know, they want to have they do want to have that kind of crazy Harpo element to it, where he's he's unpredictable and and mm-hmm. he has a sort of magical element to him. But they also want to have established a sort of night of the opera setting where it's a realistic film yeah. that we're hanging the movie on this, you know, this kind of a Thalbergian clothesline where everything is set out and all the scenes. Right. So what I would say is, and again, because we sometimes rewrite these things, take the leaning against the wall scene, put it later on when we've got some action going on sure, and I they're being agree. chased. Yeah. Then do that. Uh, and now we've built up to the chaos. Yeah. This should be your first time you see him. Yeah. It's like, agree. who is this guy? Oh, he's just doing a little fun thing. And then he gets right. beaten as, as he does <laughs> in Night at the Opera, which is what you do. Yeah. You beat up Harpo and that, that makes you, it's like watching a guy kick a dog. Now this guy is such a villain that you don't, anything can yeah. happen to him and you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of clever, the, uh, the shoe shine bit. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so the count enters to find Rusty, uh, 
I just like that he's wearing several shoeshine brushes. He's got a hel- football helmet on with a brush. Yeah. Like a touch talk like he's a Roman gladiator. And he's enjoying it. He's having a good legionary. time doing it. Yeah. Polishing several shoes that are attached to the wall. Now, how they're attached to the wall, I don't know. I can only imagine that he just nailed them to the wall. Sure. <laughs> so the count, all the count has little holes in the back of his shoes now. The count is enraged and angrily removes Rusty's arrangement of brushes. As he is about to hit him, the scene cuts. Two, Beatrice Reiner and Kurt, the waiter, enter the room. Pfefferman instructs Kurt to decode the message. He then tells them that he plans to accept the managership of the hotel that evening. Rusty emerges from his room with the Count's suit jacket and vest. He puts Pfefferman's vest on inside out. Mm-hmm. Pfefferman noticed this after Rusty has put his jacket on, so Rusty has to pull off Pfefferman's jacket, turning that jacket inside out. Yeah. Then he cleverly fixes the vest, puts back the, puts the suit jacket, the suit jacket back on inside out, sticking Pfefferman's cane down the back of his jacket and placing his hat on the cane. Sure. Which is great. It's good. And it's a real callback. I mean, it, you could go back to Horse Feathers, for instance, when he puts on the, whatever they call the, the person, the dean of the school. Yeah. Uh, the rival school, he puts on his big raccoon coat and then has that iris sticking on the, the back of it. And so it's sort of a callback to that. Once again, it's kind of a callback to yeah, that character like of Harpo. this feels like proper Marx Brothers. This yeah. is all this is all completely right. Yeah, I'm, and also I'm like all... this how how much he enjoys it as well. He's just silently laughing it up. Yeah, he's having a good time. All for that. When this is pointed out, by the way, sorry, has he been called Rusty in a previous movie? I don't believe so. The first time, okay. Yeah. That just seemed it seemed like one. It's a good name. It is a good name for a redhead. Yeah, that's what you would call a redhead, and also it's not calling him wacky, which uh, which I'm <laughs> glad. Okay, just one second, actually. Pinky, Professor. Also, stuffy, faker, <laughs> punchy. <laughs> oh, Rusty Pinello in uh, Go West. All right, there we go. So there you go. Yes, in Go West, he was Rusty Pinello. Yep, they brought it back. It is a good name, though. So I, I don't, yeah, it, it, I don't, for, for your redheaded character, it's sort of uh, light, but it's not too on the nose of uh, <laughs> you know again yeah. wacky. Ugh, ugh, to wacky. That's the worst one. So when this is pointed out to Pfefferman, he has this Laspari moment. And starts hitting Rusty with his cane and ordering him to clean the rooms. Rusty begins vacuuming, and while adjusting the vacuum, accidentally sucks up the Count's toupee. <laughs> Without his toupee, Pfefferman can't leave his hotel room, because the distinctive scar on his head will, will reveal he is really Heinrich Stubel, former Nazi. Cut to the dining room of the hotel. Beatrice, sort of in the Marlene, Marlene Dietrich role in this film, sings a French version of Who's Sorry Now? Which I think is actually a nice nod to uh, Bert Kalmar and Harry Ruby, who wrote the words to the song that was had music by Ted Snyder. The song was actually written in 1923. Oh, wow. By, by the, I yeah. had no idea. I was very surprised to hear that song. Yeah, yeah. most Because, yeah, it, had, it was a really f- popular version by Connie Francis yeah. in the 50s. But, yeah, it started, it, was, it had several popular versions in the 20s. It was written, like I say, written in 23 by, by them and, and went through various revivals. Yeah, and I liked uh, how it was presented with the audience singing along. It That's was, in a later scene. Oh, is that right? In this first one, yeah, it's just her singing in French. Oh, okay. I, yeah. But it was, yeah, it was very joyful, the later one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brazard and the gov- governor have waited an hour for Pfefferman to oh. show up. But Pfefferman can't show up because he is trapped in his room. The governor has the inspired idea of hiring the manager of the Desert View Hotel. Since the hotel is so far from town, he will have no idea that four, that four I should say three of the hotel Casablanca managers have been killed. Mm-hmm. Cut to Annette working in the office. We have no idea what time it is at this point, by the way. It just seems weird. It feels like it should be night. Like if someone's doing a singing bit in, the, in a supper club, yeah, you would think that'd be a nighttime performance, not an afternoon performance. Also, if you've seen the title of the uh, movie, you might think that too. It's always night, all the time? Well, I would say it's a night. And t- what night are we talking? Yeah, yeah, it's a night. Yeah, it's weird. It feels like it should be late. 
This movie has kind of a weird sense of no time to it. A cleaning lady comes in and hands in a toupee, which was found in a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Annette examines it and sees that the label inside it says it is from Berlin and the property of Heinrich Stubel. And then in brackets, Nazi. <laughs> it was not smart of him to write that. Yeah. By the way, who, who, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why yeah. are you writing your, your name in your toupee? Yeah, exactly. Did your mom do it because you were going to camp? <laughs> She sewed the label in herself. Yeah. Cut to Corbaccio. We finally see Chico. Yeah, this has been a long time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's fixing the meters at his camel stand. He is joined by Rusty, and they greet each other with an elaborate handshake. Yep. Broussard and the governor are standing nearby. Yeah, that's very joyful. I like that. I like seeing that they like each other. It's good. All right. I, I do like that, but then it cuts to Broussard and the governor, and they're just, they shake their heads like, nope, not good. Shouldn't be doing that. It's just weird. Like, why are they... Why are they judging? They're, they're jerks. Yeah, they are. Uh, they mentioned that the new hotel manager will be arriving soon. Mm-hmm. Carpaccio seems excited by this news. But before before anything more can be said, the scene cuts to Carpaccio outside the railway or bus station calling for anyone going to the Hotel Casablanca. When a man tries to use his service, it, it turns out that Carpaccio is really there only to pick up the new manager, yeah. who he thinks is an easy mark. Ronald Cornblow. And this, by the way, reminds me of uh, him uh, outside the sanitarium. Mm. Yeah, just like calling, calling for people. A lot of people yeah. come out. Yeah. And this one is a little better because he's not doing it because he's a nice guy. He's doing it because yeah. he's a scammer. A better Chico character, I think. Uh, what do you think of the name Ronald Cornblow? It's Ronald. no Rufus D. Firefly, I'll say that. No. Could be worse, but yeah. <laughs> could be worse, could be better. It is what it is. Uh, he arrives and Chico quickly gloms onto him. Well, first of all, yeah, he, uh, it looks like Groucho is not buying, buying, like. No, he's very dubious. It feels, again, it feels like he's been scammed by this guy in previous movies and remembers <laughs> it. It's like, I gotta get away from this guy. He's in no way the Tootsie Fruitsy sucker who's yeah. gonna be buying a whole bunch of books from this guy. In a not great scene, this is what I wrote, he walks Groucho to his camel. But we don't get to see Groucho riding the camel, and let's talk about that because I actually okay, brought. Because you want because you're you. The, there's two jokes there. One, it's like I, I run the yellow camel. Oh, aren't they all yellow? It's yeah. like no. There's also the checkered camel. Yeah. And then there's something about like that must really cost you. Like like checkered cabs cost more than yellow cabs or something. It felt like there was an inside, an inside joke, joke there, something yeah. about that. Could be because checkered cabs are bigger, more roomy cabs than normal cabs, but. But the other thing is, is that the checkered camel is just a camel with a tarp, like a blanket draped on Didn't it. Didn't you want check- to see a full checkered yeah. camel? Yeah, I did. Because you, yeah. you have an art department that can spend Paint some time a camel. painting a freaking camel. It's not that hard to do. I yeah, throwing a, throwing a blanket on him is uh, no good. Okay. It's no good at all. So, so what do you got for me here, Dave? So what we got here is, uh, these are a couple of scenes that were actually cut out of the film. Oh. And uh, I think they're kind of interesting. So for instance, the first one we're going to talk about is... Uh, called the Desert View Hotel. This we'll, call, we'll name the scene that. It probably would have fallen just when the uh, bef- like when the governor and ca- and Captain Brizard are talking before it cuts to the count. This scene probably would have been somewhere in there. And uh, so I'll read the description. Exterior desert day. Only sand and sky are visible. Camera slowly pans to a hand painted sign sticking in the sand, reading "Free Parking." This is the Desert View Hotel. Out of the high tent district. Inside, another sign reads, Please close your tent flap before leaving. Close shot, office. Groucho is revealed reclining on the mattress. He wears an ill-fitting white linen suit topped, topped off by a red fez. I'll say he wears an ill-fitting white suit. I don't understand why everyone in this movie dresses like they're wearing a sack. Hmm. But no one in this movie has like a nice cut to their clothes. It's, like, <coughs> it's ridiculous how hmm. 
Everyone is suggesting that their clothes are going to fall right off of them. They're just... Near him rests an elaborate oriental water-cooled pipe on which he is drawing through a long-corded tube. The pipe is rigged so that there is a cigar on the far on the far attachment. A giant Arab emerges from the tent marked 2. All right. So do you want me to read the Groucho part? You can be part? Groucho, sure. All right. Are you going to read the other part? Okay. Uh, ah, Mr. Shrak Abdullah. Checking out, eh? Behind Mr. Shrak, a veiled, slim Arab girl emerges from the tent. Groucho bows. And Mrs. Shrak Abdullah. A second Arab girl appears, blushing. And Mrs. Shrak Abdullah. A third follows. And Mrs. Shrak Abdullah. This continues for a considerable number of Mrs. Shrak Abdullahs. Mrs. Shrak Abdullah. Grocho counting them on his fingers as they emerge. Bungalow number two, the bridal suite. Shrak Abdullah and his 28 wives for 27 days. No. Oh, uh, 27 wives for 28 days. Yes. <laughs> I'd have to charge you for an extra wife if, I, if you weren't on your toes. And it takes quite a man to be on his toes with 27 wives. I'd be on my heels. Mr. Shrak pays and stalks off, followed by his long retinue of wives. I don't envy him. Remember, every one of those wives has a mother. Groucho then finds a spare wife left sobbing in the bridal tent. He flings himself on the cushions beside her and consoles her. Fine, husband. He checks out of here and forgets you. Don't cry. I wouldn't worry about him. Men are ten cents a dozen. I wish women were. He'll come back for me. Well, you better hurry. Remember, the management is not responsible for wives left over thirty days. Don't be a fool. Come away with me. I'll never leave here. I'm part of Africa, and Africa is a part of me. Well, at least I'm seeing the best part of Africa. Suddenly, Mr. Shrak is standing in the door of the tent. What these tents need is a fire escape. Grocho toys nervously with an hourglass beside the couch, observes the running sand with sudden horror, and slithers past Mr. Shrak without pausing for further chit-chat. Gad! Look at the time. A quarter to eleven. At the office, a honeymoon couple i.e. a couple of blushing brides, one handsome young Arab, groom, and a camel, who probably wasn't one of the party, are waiting to book accommodation. Honeymoon, eh? You can have number two. It's still warm. As a matter of fact, it got too hot for me. It's a lovely tent with a fine view of the ocean. I see no ocean. Well, we're working on that. So far, all we've got is the beach. Grocho indicates the Sahara Desert, and the trio move off to the bridal tent. What a lucky guy. Two wives. Anytime he's in the mood, he can play three-handed rummy. Grocho then receives a telegram from the governor. So they want me to take over the Casablanca Hotel. Why, I'll never leave this hotel. I built it up from nothing. It's my old age annuity. As solid as the Rock of Gibraltar, nobody can take it away from me. A sound of wind appears, followed by a sudden desert storm. Their tornado sweeps everything away. Archway, office, tents. Like the camel beside him, Groucho is buried up to his neck in desert sand. He raises his eyebrows. I've thought the whole proposition over very carefully. I'll take the job. So that would have been that. That would have been that scene. Was, sure. Which I think is pretty, pretty good, good. Actually, yeah. yeah it's he does of a fun. little flirting. Does a little fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the next part is called the Yellow Camel Taxi Service. All right. How do you feel about? Uh, would you rather be Groucho or Chico here? I can do Chico. All right then. We're back. To Unless it. you want to do Chico. No, no. It's all. Uh, all, all fine. You know what? I've been Groucho for a bit. Why don't we flip it? Let's see. Okay. Let's see a Groucho. I'll do a little Chico. <laughs> oh, okay, boss. Here we go. <laughs> you have us a fun. Okay. Okay. You have a fun to be a Groucho. Here we go. All right. What do you do with your camels? Oh, I can't even do it. What do you do with your camels? How do you rent them? By the hour? I just fill them up with water and they go for eight days. What do you feed them? Peanuts. It's the healthiest food in the world. How do you know? Well, I was a monkey for three years. By the way, what are your rates? Hmm. 20 francs for a camel with two humps and 10 francs for a camel with one hump. What do you charge for a camel with no hump? A camel with no humps is a horse. I got a horse too, but the horse has a bump. If I could get back down there, I'd go that way. Don't worry about the price, boss. Whatever you got, I'd take. 
They arrive at the hotel and are greeted by Harpo, who takes possession of Groucho's carpet bag. Be careful of that. Everything I own in the world is in that bag. Hey, that bag is empty. That'll give you an idea what I own. Aye, that'll be a through 100 of francs, boss. But the meter says 50 francs. Yeah, but I told you, it's double for a camel with two humps. Groucho gives up and pays, but behind his back, Chico removes one detachable hump. Meanwhile, Harpo produces a whisk broom and begins violently to brush what remains of Groucho's threadbare suit. Hey, get away from me. What's the idea? What do you do anyway? Harpo pulls out a red-hot iron from his trousers, wets his forefinger, and touches the iron with a little... That's what he does, boss. He's a valet. But he was trying to undress me. That's his business. He dresses and undresses the Count. Rusty's got a very tough job. The Count's got a lot of clothes. He makes 16 changes a day. What's so wonderful about that? I did that when I was three months old. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, I like the detachable hump a lot. Yeah, it's fun. And I, it's one of those things where you, when you read the comedy bits, you're like, oh, if only they'd taken out some of the beating of Rusty. Yeah. You know, some of that kind of stuff could have been you know, less of that and more... More Chico for I think Chico's very underserved by this film actually in terms mm-hmm. of what his character gets to do. I mean, he has a couple of good nice bits, but overall not a lot of not a lot of action. My advice for all the movies that don't get to the Marx Brothers early is get to the Marx Brothers early. <laughs> People came yep. for the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. We can fill it up with other stuff, but look, you go to the ice cream parlor, get some ice cream. There you go. So, so now we we have that thing where he says. Uh, I did that when I was three months old. And then we have him... So we see him, then he walks into the hotel, where he meets Brizard, the governor of much of the hotel staff. He quickly proves himself to be impossible, wanting to instruct the hotel guests on treating the staff properly. I don't think that's so impossible. I think that's great. Yeah, this all this all sounds legit. Yeah, yeah. that's fine, yeah. Suggesting the numbers on the hotel rooms be switched for fun. Yeah. His jokes are punctuated with cutaway shots of the two villainous waiters who work for, for Pfefferman. Which is kind of weird. So he makes a joke, then you get to those two guys glancing at sidelong at each other. Like, I don't think his jokes are funny. <laughs> this is so weird. No. I mean, they're thinking, I guess we have to kill this guy, even yeah. though he's funny. I don't think he's presenting him as jokes. I mean, I, I, this, is what, <coughs> this is one of the things I like about Groucho, is Groucho put into a position of authority and then just makes chaos. Yeah. Just yeah. wants to break break down whatever structures you've got sure. there. That is good Groucho-ing. Yeah. And we haven't seen that for a while. Because, no. you know, in... In uh, the big store, he just wants to sleep. He yeah. neither wants to create chaos or do his job. He just wants to not be there. Yeah, they get a lot right in this with the characters. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's uh, that is good grouchoing. And I like I like the idea of like seeing you know we showed me a little bit of his past. That's very grouchoy. Yeah. And he's not uh, constantly worried in this either yeah. about money or yeah, yeah. murder or anything like that. He's just he's. Sure. he's just let him groucho it up. Let other people be worried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly right. Exactly right. Because uh, we now cut to some sort of low dive in Casablanca. Uh-huh. Annette meets Pierre to show him the toupee. Pierre recognizes the name Heinrich Stubel, who was a high-up Nazi station in Paris. Sure. You're laughing at the name? The I'm just toupee. saying, listen, if you're avoiding Nazi hunters, <laughs> yes. don't put your real name <laughs> in, in your, your toupee. Yeah. How That's... are they going to mail it back to you in Berlin? <laughs> I don't think you've thought, thought this through. That's right. Yeah, then you leave your address. How did they find me? <laughs> I'm not a very good Nazi. A shady barfly listens in on their conversation. Ooh. Pierre has... What I like is that they just move away two feet. And then this guy like switches along, switches to the corner of the bar. He's the same distance from them. Sure. They sk- continue to talk. Pierre has Annette return the toupee to the lost and found on the off chance that the owner might claim it in person. Meanwhile, Pfefferman is still trapped in his room. But Beatrice has an idea and leaves. Pfefferman takes a sword down off the wall and begins to swing it around, then uses it to cut the heads off some roses on the table. Rusty enters 
and nods when the excited Pfefferman asks if he found his toupee, but then hands Pfefferman a mop head. <laughs> yes, I like that a lot. I wish he put it on his head. That's though. the problem. Yeah. Yes, here's the mop head. Ah, finally. He's got to put it on. <laughs> and then you got to have like Harpo trying to style it, you know, and he's like, no, oh, get it off of me. Yeah. How do you do that? It's like someone That's... gives you a funny hat and you go, I'm not putting it on. Yeah, yeah. Wrong. Wrong. You're in the wrong movie, sir. Yeah. The furious Pfefferman begins to hit Rusty with the mop head, but his henchman Kurt asks if he can hit Rusty instead. Mm-hmm. A gracious Pfefferman hands over the mop head to Kurt, who carries on hitting Rusty. Rusty presents his car to Kurt then tears it up when it is returned. Pfefferman suggests that Rusty has challenged Kurt to a duel. An excited Kurt grabs Pfefferman's sword. Right, because the the deal then was you wouldn't he would take a person's card and tear it. Yeah. So he actually gives him a card so he can take it from him and tear it. Yeah. So it's a little extra joke yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Good point. Yeah. Thank you. So Rusty runs and hides in another room. Yeah, well, for, I like the the other guys like, uh, you know, oh, a duel, good. I want to see you make him suffer and yeah. bleed and cut. And it's like, what is that? all right, take it down six <laughs> notches, Nazi. Like, all right, like, oh, really? I'm like, I get, you're a villain, but jeez. We, we get it. Do you really want to, yeah, do you really want a corpse in your room of a person who was killed in a duel? Yeah. And sort of hiding in his room? Anyway, I guess they've murdered already. Yeah, there's lots people. of murder going on, so it's probably not going to be a problem. Uh, Rusty emerges dressed in catcher's gear yeah. and wearing a boxing glove on one hand. Sure. In a pretty good scene, which as I said before, I think is weakened by some unnecessary cutaways. I wish that we just got like a kind of wide yeah. shot and just let the action Things unfold like in front of us. Things like where he's cutting all the clothes off him yeah. are really well done. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. And, you know, like, I think the Marx Brothers are based in stage comedy and I think where they shine best is when you just the movie just allows them to present themselves as stage almost as stage comedy, like having too many insert shots of yeah. close ups and that's right and stuff. It just breaks up the comedy too much that you lose the flow of yeah. what's happening. When Groucho's talking, keep the camera on Groucho. Yeah, don't move around. Yeah, yeah. yeah same with Chico and Groucho together. Lock it on. Keep it there. And sure. when Harpo's doing his stuff, well, just yeah, do it. We want to see it. We want to see all of him. Yeah. We want to see all of his athleticism and because the fact that he was a, a great mover, he was a great mime. He really, you know, for someone who kind of fell by happenstance into playing a silent character, he was absolutely perfect for playing that character. He had a, a super expressive face. He had no problem kind of, you know, mugging it up for the camera. He wasn't shy about that at all. And he, he had this great, beautifully expressive body. And, you know, when you take a scene like that and you start cutting it up and trying to like be fancy, it just, that's not the point of what you're doing here, Archie. Yeah. You are just a functionary to, sh- to bring us the comedy, you know. Right. I'm now thinking, and I never even thought about this before, that Harper would be such an appealing character to people who were going to the movies that didn't speak English well. Sure. Like the Groucho stuff might go over their head. Oh, and for it's sure. too witty and what yeah, have you. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, Harpo's always there to give you the laughs and you're going to enjoy yeah. one third of the movie, you know, yeah. which is great. And you're going to enjoy, and you're going to, you know, you're going to enjoy Chico's double talk and stuff like that. You yeah. Know, even if you don't get the, the yeah. malpropisms or whatever, because you don't really get the language, you're going to like, you're going to get the rhythms. It's going to work sure. for you. But especially Harper was just pure. No matter what country you're from, if yeah. you just showed up, uh, you're going to, you're going to love Harpo. Sure. I mean, but seeing, seeing them for the first time, thinking of this movie as, a, you know, when I was a kid, seeing it, uh, when I was whatever, 11 years old or 10 years old. By the way, let me just ask, cause you got a cold now. Yeah. Were you homesick from school? Is that why you're watching the Marx Brothers in the afternoon? No, uh, I was actually, uh, doing, having a sleepover with a friend mm. and he was lucky enough to have a television set in his bedroom. Oh, that's crazy. I Remember never, that? I never got Some, that. A kid with that? I know. Oh, there's nothing luckier than a kid with that. Uh, he was very, I felt he was very spoiled, but, uh, I was very jealous at the same time. But yeah, we were just like, 
I don't think it was on in the evening, actually. We were just laying on his bed. It was on PBS. And I think it was actually, strangely enough, it was during like a pledge drive. Sounds about right. Like at this time in the 70s, the Marx Brothers were popular enough that if you played a Marx Brothers film yep. on an evening, you could bring in money to the to the PBS station. So we just happened to tune in. I probably missed a little bit, bit of the beginning of the movie, but I don't think we missed very much because I do remember like the building falling down part of it. Yep. So we could tune in a little. We probably missed like a little bit of the, the big opening oh, murder. Oh, no. Wow. Know, yeah. It's oh, terrible. How did you ever recover from that? <laughs> probably but, saw it in the best way possible. But, you know, someone like Groucho, even if you didn't get all the jokes as a kid, because he's speaking very quickly and a lot of the references might go over your head. And the double entendre might, yeah. you might miss that in that too. But he's so fascinating to look at. He's, his he's walking funny. His he's, great walk, his, his cigar, you know. And he does some physical business too in this film. Yeah. That's pretty good. So... By the way, when you were watching your uh, pledge drive thing, you guys donated any money to PBS? No, we were grade five. But supported by viewers like you. It was. I thought you said you were seven. No, no, grade, uh, no, 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 grade five. Oh, grade five. Yeah. I thought you just said you were five. Okay, fine. No, no, yeah. So it was just a grant from the Chubb group then. That was, <laughs> that was the was MacArthur Foundation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do remember them doing no this. tote bag for you. I remember them doing this thing where they put money in a blender, like fake money in a blender and, and blended it for some reason, but I can't remember what the point of that little sketch was. <laughs> They did more like bitty bits in those days. Okay. Nowadays, they just tend to like pan along people talking on the phone. Yeah. Well, well, music, elevator music plays, you know. People on the phone. How much money was it? It felt a little blackmail back then. Like they were trying to get like, look, we'll, we'll go back to the movie, but yeah. you better give us some dough. <laughs> give us some dough. Yeah. But actually, in those days, they didn't interrupt the film. The film played it and it's complete. Oh, that's great. It's nice. You could turn it off. Once you got to them talking about your money, let's change the channel. We probably missed something good when we did that. Um, so, despite his lack of interest, Rusty proves to be more than adequate, uh, more than an adequate swordsman. Mm-hmm. And I just love that scene where he's easily fending off. Oh yeah, just blocking. Yeah, and he's yawning, and uh, so this is great. It's so because good because he's magic and he can hold up a building. He's yeah, that character. Yeah. But that's fun. Yeah, he's, that's what you want. Yeah, he's scared till he's not scared. Yeah. Then he's magic. It's a, he's he's basically a cartoon character, like you were saying, someone who was involved in animation. Yeah. This is what Bugs Bunny would do yeah. as well. Yeah, and you, you know, and and what makes his character so appealing as a kid is that you do have that little thrill of worry. At the same time, there's never a feeling that he's in any danger. Mm-hmm. In a, even a film like this but, where he's in a duel. But the other guy is describing what could happen. I yeah. want you to cut him twice. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, like big cut him twice before needed, he finishes. I don't think we home. needed that stuff. I don't really No, like I really don't think it, you know. <laughs> you, you could have just like, show him what's what. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. Know. Yes. But he's a Nazi and he's not, evil. And, uh, not funny. Don't need things that aren't funny. Eventually, Kurt collapses from exhaustion. <laughs> cut to Beatrice walking seductively into Cornblow's office. She approaches Cornblow and offers him a cigarette. He offers her a cigar. Mm-hmm. After he lights her cigarette... His own cigar. Yeah. Yeah, turns it around and like his... A- a- yeah, you want this Sorry, I'm just going to have a little drink. Sure. <coughs> I went through my coat too fast. After he lights her cigarette in an extremely long holder, <laughs> she blows smoke in his face, which is a weird... like Is that supposed to be seductive, to blow smoke in someone's face? Yeah. I don't know. And he returns the favor in kind to blowing a thick cloud of cigar smoke in her face. Eventually, they end up in a thick, enveloping fog of smoke <laughs> yeah. that reminds Cornblow of Pittsburgh, which I did like sure, that joke. Yeah, that was good. Joke. She tells Cornblow that she has lost her diamond clip and hopes that it may have turned, it may have been turned into the lost and found. Cornblow happily checks the lost and found, but there is no diamond clip. I know. What did he say? Like, what was the, what was the opening line about? You know, you're lost and I'm found. There was something. There was something there that was like a good line. I'm sorry, I don't was. remember. That's fair. 
There's no diamond clip there, but there is a toupee, mm-hmm. which he shows to Beatrice and pretends it's a beard. <laughs> uh, Beatrice takes the toupee and hides it away, distracting Cornblow by stroking his rat. Now his let me hair. ask. Let me ask you this on that topic: mm. Is Groucho wearing a toupee at this point, no. or has he just gone? Oh, he is natural. Oh, natural yes. It works. Yeah, it's, it's fine. fine. He didn't need to do that in those other movies. Yeah, I don't think it was him that wanted it. I think it was the studio that wanted him to to have that look the same as they've looked throughout the films, right. have that continuity of character look. But yeah. I, you know, there's a quote when he was doing Go West where he says, you know, once the toast of Broadway, now I spend my days going in to have my hair my hair tinted and being fit for early American pants. <laughs> and just that kind of feeling of, you know, just sort of spinning yeah. your tires, you know. She invites him to join her at the supper club that evening. As she leaves, Cornblow intones, you don't have to sing for me, just whistle. Yes. A reference to the Humphrey Bogart film to have and have not. What I thought they were doing with the smoke was that. Which is like, you know, the, the line is, you know how to whistle, don't you? Yeah. Just put your lips together and blow. Yeah. Which is what they were doing earlier, where they're yeah, just like true. blowing smoke at each other. And I wonder other. if that was sort of a parody of that kind of two characters smoking with each other. Yeah. Where, but it's just exaggerated, like kind of, you know, they're actually blowing the smoke blowing in each other's face. Directly into each other's not faces, just, yeah. You know, not just enjoying that, that smoke together, you know. Yeah, it's going to be. It's been a while since I saw it, Have and Have Not. It's a film I've seen a few times, but uh, it's been a while since I watched that scene. Right. I should have I just watched it on YouTube. Well, I'm certain not, I, get, I found it. It's not too late. You sure? Oh, that's right. YouTube is off. off. Actually, it was this <laughs> it week. Was, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> In the lobby, Beatrice waits for the elevator. When the door opens, Rusty steps out, smoking from a four-foot-long cigarette. That under. I really laughed yeah. at. Yeah, it was just, just ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. He then blows out smoke bubbles, a trick not seen since Animal Crackers. It's a good trick. It is a fun trick, yeah. And that's, of course, that totally appealed to me as a kid because I love... That kind of pra- practical, Wheel, just business, I love, yeah. I love any kind of physical ability like that, that that's shown off in a movie. Whether it's Buster Keaton, you know, be able to do great falls, or or you know, the gook, the gookie face that Harpo does, where he like purses his lips together and crosses his eyes and kind of blows out his cheeks. Like I love that look. I just all those sort of things are just like so magical to me as a as a kid. Yeah. You know, really appeal to me. That sort of oh, what are they? How do they? How do people in the past get these abilities? It's also it's the kind of thing like you could practice and figure out how to do that. And as a kid, you're like, yeah, if I got a cigarette, uh, but you know, figure out how to blow those bubbles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How do you do it? What What do you do? What is it? Is it just bubble mix? Do you put that in your mouth? I don't think so. I think he's just using his saliva. He's just using saliva. How do you make your saliva that thick? How's that work? He must have known a uh, trick. He also Drink smoked. A bunch of milk? He did smoke, so he probably had kind of phlegmy saliva okay. anyway. Beatrice steps into the elevator car. That was, that was the name they rejected was Flemmy. Flemmy. That was the name they would not go with. Uh, Beatrice steps into the elevator car and studies Rusty haughtily through a lorgnette. So she's holding up that one that little yes. eyepiece on a, on, a, on a stick. And Rusty holds a lorgnette up to his eye in response. But then puts it to his lips and blows bubbles. That was great. Which is another great. That's thing. great. It's because he's popping her bubble. It's the three. Oh, very good. Yeah, it's just this great beat of like. First of all, he's just repeating what she's yeah. doing, which looks silly. Yeah. Which is fine on its own. Yeah. Then he changes it to the bubbles, blowing the bubbles. Oh, that's great. Now we're done. Yeah. Wrong. Then he sees the bubbles and he starts biting them like a dog. With yeah. A ruff, yeah. Ruff. And it's uh, it's great. Just takes it to that nice next yeah. level. Cut to Beatrice at the supper club now singing. Who's sorry now in English? Because this movie apparently had a very small musical budget. Sure. And enjoying the audience to sing along. And I was listening to it, I thought, remarkable. This audience is remarkable. They sing like a professional choir. Yes, they do. 
They all know it. They all know. I the guess song. it's a popular song. People knew songs back then. They would sing sure together. Did. Sure did. I like that though. It was a very joyful thing. They're yeah. all like it's kind of a sad song. Yeah. But then it was also like it really caught what what the end of the song was like. Haha, you're sorry now. Yeah. I'm happy that you're sorry. I'm not sorry. Everything's everything's fine because yeah. you you blew it with me, buddy. And they all sing it so 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 happy at the end. Pfefferman. <laughs> You've gotten tired of him, have you? Now that his toupee has been restored, yeah, it's a good name, Pfefferman. Now that his toupee has been restored, is in the supper club and instructs Beatrice to lure Cornblow to the corner of Rue Lafayette. I like that he doesn't supply a cross street, just at the corner of Rue Lafayette. Yeah, how small is this street? He then tells Kurt to kill Cornblow in a traffic accident and make it look like an accident. Mm-hmm. Of course, and maybe Kurt is better than the guy who is supposed to make it look like an accident when they killed. Tommy in uh, the big store when they're trying to kill Tommy in the big store. Yeah, make it look like an accident. Okay, I'll punch him in the head in the elevator. <laughs> A full elevator full of people. <laughs> yeah. Pierre is approached by the barfly who is listening in on his and Annette's conversation in the bar. The barfly says that he knows of a man who wears a toupee, but he wants a few hundred francs for the information. Rusty and Corbaccio overhear this conversation, and knowing that Pierre doesn't have the money, decide to raise some. They see the restaurant maitre d' accept a small bribe to seat a couple in the overcrowded restaurant. By the way, then the guy says he's going off to the Brass Monkey. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you mention that? Do I just like, like uh, I like the song Brass Monkey. But that's I believe that's a I believe that's a Beastie Boys song, Brass Monkey. Is it? Yeah. Brass Monkey, that funky monkey, Brass Monkey. Yeah. I felt like I knew their knew their entire oeuvre. Yeah. I don't know that song. How well, sad. I'm just I'm over it. <laughs> You're over it. Um... Yeah, they impersonate the maitre d'. Yes. To, get, to get tips and bribes. That's yeah. right. Which so, is not a bad scam. But luckily for them, and for no particular reason, they're both wearing dinner jackets over top of their regular clothing. Mm. So it, look like, it looks like they're dressed for the winter, but they're not. They're dressed for this particular job. Yes, they begin accepting bribes and start setting up tables and chairs in the middle of the restaurant wherever they can right. find space. This is a good bit. This is really, I really enjoy this yeah. bit. Uh, meanwhile, Cornblow enters the restaurant and is shown to Beatrice's table where she sits with Fairman. As Cornblow reaches out to greet Beatrice, he is rudely bumped by Rusty, who is sitting up a table and chairs, spilling soup onto Pfefferman. Pfefferman, of course, is upset yep. and storms off, yep. leaving Beatrice and Cornblow together, which may be a, part of his plan anyway. The band strikes up a rumba, and Cornblow and Beatrice begin to dance. Yeah, do you do you rumba? Uh, I don't, but I'll walk around you while you do it. <laughs> yeah. Get up here. The dance floor. I like, by the way, I like uh, oh, Groucho when a woman is flirting with him. Yes, that he because he's the he's the flirter. Yeah. Until they start flirting back. Yeah. And then the, then the rhythm changes. That he a plays hard bit. to get. Yeah. Then he plays hard to get. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. The dance floor is slowly taken over by Corbaccio and Rusty's tables and chairs until only Cornblow <laughs> and Beatrice remain. And a second he says, "This used to be all dance floor around here." Yes. Yeah. That was that was great. Beatrice invites Cornblow to meet him at the corner of Rue Lafayette at 11 o'clock. Once again. <laughs> Cornblow seems to accept, but of course the scene cuts before he can say anything because they're trying to cut out 25 minutes of movie. <laughs> but once again, yeah, just corner of Rue Lafayette. Okay, well, hopefully I can find it. Then we cut to a merry Rusty and Corbaccio, happy that they have raised enough money for Pierre. I just want to point out, this line is, this whole plot line is dropped immediately. Pierre does not pay this guy any money. Oh, yeah. He doesn't find out who has a, where, who wears a toupee oh, yeah, in Casablanca. Yeah. That's true. We never see anything, anything mentioned in this oh, again. Oh, yeah. He does, however, get the money. I don't know what he did with this few hundred francs that he, they got. As they pass through the club, the piano player with the band asks Corbaccio if he'll fill in for the, for him. Frustratingly, the band leader looks familiar to me. Mm. I was like, oh, kind of looks like Wally Cox. Oh. But it's, 
it's he's not mentioned in the in the like there's no mention of who the piano player is right. in like on IMDb. Did you, did you find 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 it out? No, I looked on IMDb. Then this is what we do. Yeah. Hi, uh, audience, how you doing? Can you help us? Do you know who that band leader is? Yeah. If so, please let us know, and maybe we'll bring that up in uh, two shows from now. Why does he look familiar? Corrections and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, he does kind of look. He's reminiscent looking of Charles Lane, who played the the collector, the debt collector sure. at the end of the big story in the last film. Right, you know, kind of a long, narrow faced, yeah, glasses wearing guy. Life, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't. Uh, but I don't. I don't. It wasn't him. So I don't know who. Okay, it was. if anyone knows who that is, uh, let us know. One interesting thing about this. One interesting part of this movie, because it was sort of a low budget film, then independently for the studios. Is there's a real dearth of of longtime character actors in this film, mm. like in the other Marx Brother movies, because there were yeah. MGM, which had this. You would always say like, "Oh, that guy did 500 movies." Yeah, that yeah, year. that's right. Yeah. yeah, there's all these, but a lot of these actors are just kind of came and went. They're just hired for one sure. of these movies. They maybe did a couple of B grade films or Z grade films, and then moved on to something, to another life. Hopefully, that had money involved with it or, or whatever. Wish them all well. We wish them well. We wish we wish we wish them well. Both when what they did then and the afterlife they're in now. <laughs> yes. Corbeccio sends Rusty to Pierre with the money and proceeds to play the beer barrel polka, last seen in At the Circus. Yeah. He, it's back again. Yeah. Okay. It's done a little differently. It's got like that kind of mock Sure, but it's interesting that he's doing like the same song again, yeah, but yeah. it's fine. It probably was. The reason was it was cheap to license. Yeah. Because they didn't want to pay a lot of money for the music for this film. Also... Then Chico doesn't have to learn a new song, probably too. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But then he plays a different song in the end. I don't think he plays. He stops Beer Barrel mm-hmm. Polka. Then he plays a different song. I don't know the name of that song. I tried to look it up, mm. and I could not find find what that song was. Well, once again, we turn to our audience and audience. go, "Do you know? Do you Let know that song? Know. Please write in and tell us." <clears throat> we cut to Annette and Pierre standing outside the hotel. Annette tells Pierre that the toupee is gone, and she can't find Cornblow to tell her who took it. Suddenly, Cornblow arrives, his suit and face covered in dirt. Oh. Apparently, a car tried to run him over three times. <laughs> he was able to escape by climbing a tree. Annette introduces Cornblow to Pierre, and they both complain that marriage, and the two of them complain to Cornblow that marriage is impossible for them due to Pierre's legal troubles. Okay, here's the thing it with doesn't, that. Just one thing. It doesn't Go seem ahead. to occur to them to ask Cornblow who took the toupee. <laughs> yep. Yeah. What? Good point. You just brought it up. Okay, anyway. and I get that uh, we don't maybe want to see the trying to run him over three times. That's yeah. an expensive scene to do. Sure. How about how about this just for just for laughs? Yeah. Is uh, you're walking by the tree and he's in it and like, what are you doing up there? Sure. It's like uh, a car tried to run me over. Th- you know, and then you have the conversation with him in the tree. That's a funny visual. Yeah. Like he's describing a lot of funny things that we're not seeing. And I understand sometimes you can't, but you could be in or, a tree. Or they could have done it off camera so that. They see him, he's going off, he says, you know, I got a hot date. And then he goes off camera, and then we hear, like, a squealing of tires and a crash. And then another squealing of tires, yeah. you know, and then, you know, and they're, you know, they're reacting, reacting to it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then another squealing of tires and, you know, the revving of the engine and stuff like that. And, and then a weird, his, then his a funny remark and, while he's up in a tree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. Sometimes you, of, sometimes you feel like a nut. Yeah, yeah. instead he's, tree, yeah. he's showing up and going like, uh, hey, you missed a whole bunch of funny business I did just a couple of seconds ago. <laughs> this wasn't the date I was looking for. There you are. The, his line in the movie is terrible, though. I'm barking up the wrong this. Yeah, I just, it was. Uh, before I saw you two, I thought every date in town was broken. What does that mean? Every date in town was broken? Yeah. It was one tree, sir. Certainly one date tree in all of Casablanca. Well, there's only one corner. So, it's a very round town. So once again, Pierre begins telling him his uh, Nazi treasure story. Fortunately, we fade out to 
Rusty walking down the hallway of the hotel. He approaches Pfefferman's room. Rusty overhears plans to lure Cornblow to Beatrice's room, where Pfefferman, as the outraged fiancé, can discover them and shoot Cornblow in self-defense. I don't know how that works. If you go into a room, there's a guy in there with, with your girlfriend, <laughs> fiancé, and our wife. Yeah. If you're allowed to shoot them in self-defense, who, what's the self-defense? Well, you put the gun or whatever in the other person's hand. <laughs> it feels like since we've got this world of dueling, yeah. I just say dueled. Yeah. Apparently that's all right. Sure. You know? That would have been kind of... Yeah, if you'd run to the door with that, with that sword, that actually would probably be better. Well, what you do is you put it like through the keyhole when he's like uh, coming up to the door and just go slip, and then out. Easy. Rusty finds Carbaccio outside, watering... I thought it was watering... It looked like he was watering the lawn chairs. I mean, <laughs> probably watering the lawn. Okay. He mimes the information a yeah. la Day of the Races sure. for Carbaccio. And like Day of the Races, he gets things wrong. Yep. And for, I think for the third time, thinks that by him making the international symbol of a womanly shape with yeah. his hands that he's talking about a snake sure why not go for it three times so yeah three times that's when charm. you find out chico is just very attracted to snakes <laughs> like by that point you got to suspect something <laughs> he's a what real, i what i always real herpify what i always would have liked to have seen because you know one of the gags with harpo is that yep. he's got everything in his pockets as well it's like you go through the elaborate, you go through the elaborate, and then just like he pulls out the thing and shows it to him because he's got it in his pocket. Yeah, yeah. You know, just like because you know, by the time you get to the third one, yeah, okay, we get that. This is you got to you got to break the pattern. Now, yeah, but yeah. still entertaining. Pfefferman approaches Cornblow in the hotel lobby and has him book a seat for a flight to Tunis. This is a way of setting up the fact that he's going to be gone. Sure. If you care about the plot, Corbacho and Rusty, <laughs> Corbacho and Rusty run up to Cornblow to let him know about the plot. Rusty performs the completely incomprehensible pantomime for Cornblow, who is unimpressed. Carbaccio attempts to warn Cornblow, hiring himself on as a bodyguard over Cornblow's objections. Cut to Rusty and Corbaccio standing guard outside Cornblow's office door. A waiter approaches with Cornblow's lunch. They let him in, and then immediately regret not having some food themselves. They appoint themselves Cornblow's food tasters and quickly eat up his lunch. Yeah, that's a good bit. It makes sense. Oh, yeah. because It we makes get, sense for plot. We go all the way back to yeah. uh, the coconuts. Where we oh, get to what see, do they do in that? Well, we get to see uh, Harpo or Rusty in this, is, uh, eating bits of, like he's eating the cup. He starts eating the cup. Yes. That was good. So we haven't seen that for a while. Uh, he eats a candle. He's in his cups. Opens a bottle of wine with a cork as long as the bottle. Like that? That was just weird. He salts the foam. And it's and then he takes it out and it's uh, nothing in it. And yeah. It's like, that's a dry champagne. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's great. Yeah. Give me some physical business and then give me a capper joke. That's perfect. Yeah. And then, like I said, he eats a cup and saucer. Yeah. Cut to, and also like this scene a lot. Cut to Rusty sweeping the lobby using the open toe of his shoe as a dustpan. Yes. That's a lot of fun. Yes. I like that because he does the bit with the, the woman where he puts the, his leg up. Yes. She's holding so it. We get it's a like, variation. We've seen this, we've yeah. seen this a million times. But not for a while because isn't that a, he didn't really do it in too many of the MGM films. Fair enough. Yeah. And then she looks down, sees his shoes open, puts her cigarette butt in there. Yeah. He closes it and it's like, yes, it's a variation on the thing, as you say. Yeah, it's goes over to, uh, you know, an area and dumps all the butts out of his shoe. It's just surreal and great. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get a snooty couple mm. who walk through the lobby. Oh, those guys. Come on. Basically pushing uh, Rusty out of the way. Oh. They walk up to Cornblow at the desk and demand attention. Sure. Calling him a clerk. Oh, dear. One second. Excuse me. Cornblow won't let them check in without a marriage license. <laughs> so basically, it's just like one long insulting scene. And once again, having when I saw it as a kid, I just thought that was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> Someone would just... They sort of relentlessly insult a, a couple of snooty people 
you know, and it's but it's funny too because it's just you know it's so ridiculous. It's true. Smith is a common name to yeah. use to check in. Well, he said Smythe. But yeah. Smythe, mm. you know, oh, put a Y in front of it and think it's or put a Y in it and think you're gonna fool me. You know, just like, I think it's great. Beatrice then calls Cornblow in her most sultry manner and invites him up to her room. Cornblow calls for the elevator and finds Rusty mysteriously now acting as the elevator operator. As they go up, they be- the the elevator becomes stuck between the fifth and sixth floor. Rusty climbs out through the roof of the car to go and get help. But as he attempts to climb the wall, he finds a secret hidey hole. Yeah. Climbing in, he is shocked to discover a hidden room full of the Nazi, full of the Nazi treasure, including a harp. Which, of course, being rusty, he immediately plays. Yeah, this is nice. It moves the plot along. It's kind of thrilling. It yeah. uh, builds things up, and, and it's then sort it's, of very magical in the yeah, sense that he's magical. by himself in this little in this little room of treasure playing this harp. Yeah, it, it really is very effective, I think. Uh, and he plays Franz Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. Two. Why did he play Liszt? Cheap. Ah. Cut to Cornblow asleep, perched uncomfortably on a stool in the elevator. He is woken up by the returning Rusty, who has a plan to free them from the elevator. He cuts the elevator cables with an axe, <laughs> sending them into a rapid descent, <laughs> visible only by the needle of the floor indicator bouncing up and down, which is a very good se- sequence, and very cartoony. Yep. Cornblow and Rusty exit the elevator as if their mainsprings have sprung. Beatrice is not letting Cornblow escape. She invites Cornblow up to her room again. Corbaccio warns him that he's putting himself in danger. Sure. Beatrice is called to her room by, Fef- by Pfefferman. It's called it's telephone, I should say. She's telephoned in a room by Pfefferman, who is strangely in a Turkish bath. Mm. Which I thought, I guess, for a little bit of Sigruman beefcake. Sure. She lets him also know. Also, to show you, you're in a different part of the world. Let's just establish that. I guess, yeah. yeah. She lets him know that Cornblow will be with her soon. Cornblow arrives at Beatrice's room with a bucket of champagne, some flowers, and a coffee tray with treats. They are interrupted by Corbaccio, causing Cornblow to suggest that he and Beatrice meet in his room instead. Beatrice writes a quick note to Pfefferman, letting him know where they will be in 15 minutes. Cornblow awkwardly takes the bucket of champagne, the flowers, and the coffee tray, as well as the record player at Beatrice's yes. insistence, and makes his way out of the room. Minutes later, Pfefferman bursts into the room, playing the outraged fiancé. He is surprised to find no one there. He soon notices Beatrice's note and departs. Meanwhile, Cornblow is in his room, waiting for Beatrice. She comes in, and Cornblow embraces her. Suddenly, there is a knock at the door. It is Corbaccio scolding Cornblow once again for having a woman in his room. A disgusted Beatrice decides that she is going to return to her room. <laughs> a game Cornblow proceeds to pick up the bucket of champagne, the flowers, and the coffee tray, as well as a record player. And Beatrice writes Pfefferman another note. Soon after, Pfefferman barges through Cornblow's door, gun drawn, only to find the room empty. We cut to Cornblow slowly making his way along the hallway, loaded down with stuff. He knocks at Beatrice's door and discovers that he has been replaced by his own bodyguard, who opens the door to take the champagne. Cornblow asks that he save the cork as he's going fishing. I just love that line. I don't know. I just think that's a great line. Save the cork. I'm going fishing. Whereas going fishing is in the desert. But anyway, it's, yeah, it's that's a great line. Thing. Well, they're going to get the ocean sooner now. Yeah. Great line. Just right now, it's the beach. Yeah. Uh, and that's a good scene, I think. I think that's a, yeah. a well-done scene. You know what? I a also, little more Chico uh, in it would have been better, but yeah, they've stopped uh, mentioning, uh, or maybe I missed it. My, can't he talk to, about Harbo and stuff? I, I like, <coughs> yeah, yeah. None of that. We all get it. Just move on. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is better that way for sure. Cut to Carbaccio and Rusty walking past the hotel casino, too broke to be able to play. Oh, suddenly they yeah, notice. He, you can see the broke as he pulls his uh, yeah his pockets, pockets inside out. out, and one of them's wearing a barrel. <laughs> Just joking. Yeah. Suddenly they notice. Some some mothballs out. It's like the whole thing. It's a tribute to, uh, wasn't it Will Johnstone? It was one of his claims to fame was that he was the first person to draw 
who wrote Monkey Business and uh, worked in Horse Feathers. He was one of the first people to draw a uh, man, like, or he kind of created that image of the person being broke, and, the, and they're so broke they have to wear a barrel. Oh, That was okay. his uh, contribution to, to culture, as well as writing Monkey Business. Pretty darn good. And also wrote I'll Say She Is. Suddenly they notice some money laying on the floor. They both leap upon it, but Rusty comes up with the money. They go to the roulette wheel where Rusty places the money on Red 5. A disgusted Pfefferman takes his money off of Red 5 and yeah, puts it somewhere else. Yeah. He'll be sorry. He goes on an amazing run, not moving the money, but coming up with Red 5 twice. He wants to hold and play a game, but the croupier refuses, saying he'll break the bank. Cornblow approaches and lets Rusty play, certain that Red 5 couldn't poss- possibly come up three times in a row. The ball lands in Red 5 once again, and Rusty breaks the bank. By the way, I watched the trailer for this movie, and they, they, they mentioned this in the movie, like, you'll love it when Harpo breaks the bank. <laughs> it's not even played up that much. Yeah. But it's like a big thing. Like, it's like, oh, he'll win some money. That'll be nice. But I also went, well, now I know he breaks the bank. Uh, Thanks, trailer. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. It has no bearing on anything else that happens. In yeah. The I mean, I like seeing Harper break the bank. That's great. But they really do set it, like, they set it up in such a, if this happens. Yeah. yeah. I don't care. Okay. Fine. <laughs> he can't possibly. Uh, he does. Yeah. But I guess the reason they did this is so that Pfefferman can use this lucky break as an excuse to accuse Cornblow of colluding with Rusty and yes. Carbaccio. He tells Brizard and the governor that he has learned that Cornblow was not the manager of the Desert View Hotel, but of some smaller, even more out-of-the-way place that didn't even have a hotel. we need the park bench scene. Yes, I guess that's true. Yeah. He paid off Annette with a share of the winnings. So Annette is also part of this... Mm. The governor offers Pfefferman the manage- managership of the hotel. He accepts on the condition that the police arrest Cornblow and the Ooh. others. Cut to Rusty Carbaccio and Cornblow in a jail cell. Annette is in another cell crying. So they do a little bit of, you know, try to cheer her up. Yeah. Like that. This, he- is, this is that scene, which is, yeah, you know, right. they learned from the MGM days. You That's right. You should this yeah. scene in your movie. Yeah, I think they follow the scene better than, say, the big store. The big store had no Absolutely such Absolutely they sure. do, yeah. I mean, if you're going to have, if you have to have those in these movies... Well, you know. And the one guy has the pinups on the wall. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And they're like, yeah. we're not there yet because oh, Pierre, Pierre is then brought into the jail. Ah, oh, very good. Under arrest to be flown back to Paris to face a court-martial. Uh-huh. That's when Rusty pulls out an unframed painting to hang in the cell. The others discover that it is a Rembrandt. Right. Well, the the guy did have his pinups first. Yeah. Took them down. And then, yeah, we're going to replace it with this. Ooh, that's what a dish. Yeah, what a dish. <laughs> kind of a call. Once again, kind of a callback to the little pinup he kept bringing around with him. That's in right. Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. And that suggests that if Rusty has a Rembrandt, he must know where the Nazi treasure is hidden. Somehow this changes things, and now they must get out of jail. A guard is walking through the prison when he hear when he hears a commotion from this from the cells. He arrives to find Rusty foaming at the mouth, and when he tries to investigate, mm-hmm. he is overpowered and they are able to steal his keys. We cut quickly to Pfefferman, who has begun to move the Nazi treasure out of its hiding place, preparing to ship it to Casablanca. Beatrice overhears them planning to leave her behind, and she calls the police. Back at the jail, Cornblow and the others have found their way into Brizard's office. The phone rings and Cornblow answers it. It is Beatrice reporting that Pfefferman is attempting to leave the hotel <laughs> with the treasure. Cornblow is incensed into action, sending Annette to free Pierre while he and the others try to stall Pfefferman's departure. Cut to Cornblow, Corbaccio, and Rusty running through the hotel lobby. Meanwhile, Beatrice has snuck into Pfefferman's rooms. When she hears, uh, when she hears the approach of Cornblow and company, she hides in a large steamer trunk. Cornblow and the others enter the room and begin unpacking the several trunks. A cat-and-mouse game ensues as Pfefferman, with the help of his henchmen, tries to pack with, well, Rusty, Corbaccio, and Cornblow do their best to unpack, slowly driving Pfefferman mad. So this is a bit of a com- combination of uh, 
I was thinking that the scene, the, the scene with the chairs and stuff like that, the dance floor sequence in uh, the Summer Club was yeah. kind of a it was kind of the stateroom sequence yes. of the film has that claustrophobic feel of crushed everyone crushed together, and this scene I guess is an attempt to kind of do the uh, the police detective coming to the, the the hotel room in A Night at the Opera, where they're switching the beds and moving stuff around. Yeah, and I think it works okay. I feel like once again the filming of it kind of ruins it. It slows it down too yeah. much. It doesn't allow just for what it should be, which is just a, a, a yeah, solid shot. Cuts ruin uh, ruin the mood, not mood, but ruin the um, uh, velocity, the flow of it. Yeah, flow, ruin yeah. the flow of it. And for something that they developed on stage, you know, it would have been really well timed and, and set up so that you had a real sense of yeah. starting and stopping and, and you know sneaking around and all that kind of stuff. And and this film, because of the cuts, cuts slow down. A sequence that's the you know yeah. like you can fast cut through something that's a bit different but when you cut to a person or you cut to an object in a in a sequence of something happening what you're doing is you're breaking the audience's attention and so you're slowing the scene down yeah and you're not moving time ahead it makes sense in, yeah. if you're if you're using it yeah to alter time but if you're trying to keep things going at the same in the same time period yeah it it screws it up yeah it just messes it up and so yeah. you don't have to be rope but uh, <laughs> you know, yes. be careful yeah uh, and so. It, yeah, I mean, the reason that rope does that is because there's a body in the trunk. And if you cut, you can make people forget what yeah. they're doing. So you need to have Spills. those long scenes. But the, the, the reason, sorry, and the reason we're bringing up rope, if you're not familiar with rope, is it's, uh, it looks like it's one long scene. There are some places where there's clearly transitions. Yeah. But the idea is you're watching it like you're watching a play. Basically. And it builds the tension. And the same thing happens with comedy. And when you when you, when you do a cut, you release uh, some of the tension. Yeah. And that makes the joke less funny. Yeah, it breaks, especially in a scene like this where you're worried about them getting caught, yeah. getting, being seen. But by cutting, you remove that risk because you can cut any time. You know, so there's not that sense of real time thing happening. Right. It breaks down, it breaks into bitty bits, and then it's not as exciting and, and it's interesting. Agreed. So it's too bad because it is. It could. It is a fun scene as it is, and I do like things like where they're, you know, uh, bringing Harpo out, and he's inside the garment bag, and he's just walking along, <laughs> and then he flops him onto the table, and he just lays there on the table until he picks it up again, and then puts him into the, you know, things like that are fun. Uh, I like that they turn the steamer trunk upside down, you know, but. It would be better if it happened in real time. Yes. Or, you know, it happened in a sort of an as uncut as sequence possible, as much yeah. as possible because then you see them turned upside down. You see him walk over. You see him open it. And instead it's broken up and it's, it's too bad. Yeah. In the end, Rusty and Corbaccio hide in a trunk together and Cornblow and Beatrice hide in another and they are packed onto a truck. As the truck drives out to the airfield, they all get out of their trunks and as they're standing in the back of the truck, a big bump throws them all onto the ground except for Beatrice who remains on the truck and they're left behind. Yep. Fortunately, Pierre and Annette have escaped their airport guards and have taken a car. There's so many stolen cars in these Marks Brothers yeah. films. They've taken a car Everyone leaves the keys in the ignition <laughs> and, are, and are able to pick up the others on the side of the road. They arrive at the airfield just in time to see a large propeller plane preparing to taxi onto the runway. As they run after the plane, Pfefferman sees them and has Emil rev the engines, the dust and wind sending the heroes tumbling. Then they take a truck, they steal a truck, yeah. and begin to pursue the plane. This is very Indiana Jones at this point. Sure. Yeah, it's... and it's and again, it's fine. Like, I get that you're in your third act, you want to have some action. Yes. You know, because I, I prefer comedy over action. I don't I necessarily agree. think that the action is very funny, but I can see why you would want 
Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, we've had a train. We've had stuff. Uh, we've had fights in barns. Yeah. I have not seen a plane before, though. So this does feel, this does feel fresh. What's nice with a fight in the bar, barn or in, in the sequence in the, at, at the circus in the, the trapeze sequence is you have Groucho, uh, giving us color commentary yes. on what's happening. So you have a funny narration. What we lack in Go West and what we lack in the big store and what we lack in this sequence are funny cutaways to quips yeah. that Groucho might make or Chico might make, some sort of misunderstanding of something that's said, you know, grab yeah. the ladder, what could be a funny way to... Because we were just saying no cutaways before. But the this other, is an action sequence. But the, that's right. The other one was to build tension, so yeah. you, rele- you release the tension, yeah. which is wrong. Whereas here, yeah, it's an action sequence, so you can have cutaways and yeah. then go back, and when you go back... The action has grown. Yeah, and it's not just that. It's a comedy yeah. movie, so you don't really need to have the action totally ramped nope. up to, to, high, to a high level. But that's how you, but that's yeah. how you play those beats. It's mm-hmm. like you're in trouble, comment on it, go back, and now it's e- even bigger. Whereas it feels like Groucho is too sincerely worried uh, at this point. Same with like Harpo and Chico. They're like, yeah. now three guys, they're actually in some trouble. And it's sure. like, wait a second, you're hold up a wall guy. You're, <laughs> you know. You don't care about anything guy. You'll yeah. go to a hotel and switch all the numbers on the room. That's right. You'll insult, uh, you'll insult the owner of the Casablanca dry cleaning company. Yeah. You're almost like going, this is no time for jokes. Yeah. Let's uh, save that person on the plane. Yeah. That's right. And this, this is a perfect time for, for funny jokes like, uh, Grocho not being able to light a cigar. Right. Or something like, you know, just little things like that that would be kind of amusing. You know, you know, they're driving on a track at high speed. What can we get? What kind of, what sort of jokes can we milk out of this? You know, and the movie really kind of takes it easy. Cause I'll tell you right now, it's easier to write a, a, a fairly cliched action sequence like this than it is to, it's easier to write this than it is to write comedy. It's much right. harder to put jokes into the sequence. And so they take the easy way out and they don't. Which is strange. You would think it would be easier to have that cut to Groucho saying something funny than, than staging an elaborate stunt. Sure. But yeah, we're right. But yeah, it's are. hard. It's hard to write funny jokes. Yeah. When they catch up to the plane, they use a ladder to cross from the truck to the plane. They're so excited to see the ladder. A ladder! <laughs> yeah. Like, all right. <laughs> a fight ensues on the plane. Fefferman ends up in the truck. Yeah. I like seeing Harpo doing the roll, uh, yeah. roll on the ladder. It's yeah. Good. It's a good stunt. That is good. They're all, they all have a little bit of ladder business thing. Yeah. Do. Yeah. Uh, Beatrice, who, I gotta tell you this, fights like a fury. <laughs> like, she is throwing lefts and rights. Like, sure. she is fighting like crazy. It's amazing. But she gets knocked out, despite her, despite her fighting. Kurt is thrown from the plane, and Emil, the pilot, is knocked out, leaving Rusty to fly the plane. Mm-hmm. Rusty, what I like here is that, uh, he's so enjoying himself so much sitting there when the pilot is sent back down to, to actually do the flying, he knocks him out again. Yes. Cause I want to fly. Yes. And that's good. That's good Harpo business. Yeah. Harpo to fly the plane makes sense. Yes. Sure. Uh, and so, yes, he succeeds it twice in avoiding uh, crashing once into a car, another time into a truck. Yeah. And then he succeeds in taking off and then feeling very comfortable, maybe too comfortable, <laughs> proceeds to fly no hands. Yes. He immediately crashes into the jail. I know. I love that. The yeah. crashes is like they're right back in the jail. Home again. It's fantastic. Yeah. Like to the point where if there wasn't all this extra plot you got to take care of. What a great ending that would be to the movie. Yes. It's like you had to do this big jail thing, and then you crash right back into the jail, roll credits, the end. Well, yeah, they kind of roll, roll the credits over Fairman's crumpled corpse. <laughs> yes. This is beaten, mutilated corpse. Yep. Da, da. <laughs> no. No, I guess I'm wrong there. I, right. No wonder I wasn't a producer. And then you play Who's Sorry Now? Over. <laughs> For a third time. Yeah. They had no music budget. Yeah, well, well, someone like points a finger at him going, him, he's the one who's sorry now. <laughs> he's very sorry. 
A Fefferman arrives with Kurt and an unconscious, con- unconscious Pierre in the truck. He and Kurt begin to attack the others, and there is a desultory punch-up. It Although, looked like kids fighting. Once again, Beatrice fights like a champ. Sure, yeah. She is kicking. She is punching. It's just crazy how yeah. she gets into it. It's like, you know you're an actress, right? You don't need to actually be throwing haymakers here, but she's just right into it. What, it, what, it, what that actually felt like to me was... You know, whenever you see kid, little kids fight, yeah. it's like wild, yeah. big swings. They oh, don't hurt each other because no, they got little. Kids. She looks really good. That's but that's the thing. Like the the boys are like throwing the punches. Yeah, the yeah. boys with because they've done this before, and it's like she hasn't been in a fight before. No. She's just like I don't know how to do this. So uh, yeah, 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 big yeah. big wild swings. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. She's also maybe. You know, if you're if you're an actress back then, what do you get to do? Yeah. You get to be the love interest. You get to sing a song. Get to do a dance. Hey, once you beat that guy up, oh yeah, I'm gonna. <laughs> uh, when am I gonna get this chance again? Yeah. Well, here we go. Never, because you only did this. Film. That's right. No more after this one. Right. Uh, uh, so the police arrive, and Rusty strips Pfefferman of his toupee. Cornblow removes his goatee. <laughs> yes, that's. And Corbaccio grabs his mustache. He is quickly recognized as Heinrich Stubel. Although it sounds to me like. Like uh, Brizard says, Stubler. It's like, oh. It, it does feel to me, though, the gag there would not be one, two, three. The gag would be one, two, and then the third thing is real. You know, it feels like that's the, that's okay. the angle. But, and then they all jump on it and just try and really rip that. <laughs> they really try to rip the mustache off. As he passes, we see that Cornblow is wearing his go- goatee, Corbaccio his mustache, and Rusty has turned his toupee into a beard. <laughs> Beatrice, Beatrice instructs us to look, she cries out. And we see Pierre and Annette necking by a wall. Aww. Their happy story is complete. Yeah, we were, we all were rooting for them. <laughs> Beatrice His sighs. His good name is clear now. Finally. Beatrice sighs and wishes that a thing like that could happen to her. She is, then regrets her saying that because she is chased off through the streets of Casablanca by Cornblow, Corbaccio, and Rusty. Yeah, there The you movie go. ends. It's an ending. The end. It's the ending. That it's always hard to end marks for their films. Yep. Besides but Mike... Fan- them all jumping on the girl. They've done that before. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The end of uh, Horse Feathers. Just you know, besides my fabulous suggestion of you know having the credits over Stubel's ma- ma- mangled corpse, this is hard to end a, a Marx Brothers film. Here's how I would have ended that. Okay, uh, so it's the three of them uh, looking looking at her, and yeah. uh, she goes, "Ah, uh, you know, I wish there was something like that for me." And she turns, and then a camel kisses her. <laughs> And then Chico goes, "What a lucky actress!" That cost extra. <laughs> oh, that's better. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I don't know. I don't know if that actress would really be up for that one. Yeah, she's never going to work again. It doesn't matter. That's true. Yeah, it would just be a puppet camel anyway. Yeah, it really would camel. be. Yeah. I think so, unless it's a very highly trained camel. Yeah, you would want the guy who camel. trained the camel to kiss. Yeah, you don't want. <laughs> you don't that's want basically to... you say to an animal trainer, "Hey, do you have a camel that's trained to kiss?" And they go, "I do." It's like, okay. Uh, officer, <laughs> we're going to get that guy out of here. Let's just find another guy. Do you have one? No. Okay, we're going to use you, and now we're going to train it to do that. <laughs> or just use a puppet. That's right. Let's do a puppet. It is easier. That's right. Let's find Jim Henson's dad and see if he's alive. But, I, you know, I was pleasantly surprised during this film. I mean, it does have some weak points, and, and I have pointed them out that it's not perfect film. But you know what? Film is perfect, and who cares? Yeah, not enough uh, Margaret Dumont. Because, yeah, well, that's, that's true enough. But, you know... It did hold up for me, like you know, watching it. I wasn't like, oh, I can't believe I built this movie up to such a, to such an extent. I think I recognized as a kid, like you know, I saw this movie, and two years later I saw Monkey Business, which was playing on New Year's Eve. My brothers, brothers and I watched it, and I, and that movie blew me away. Like that movie just floored me how great it was. 
And so I think I kind of knew that A Night in Casablanca didn't really hold up much of a right. candle to, to, to like an early film like Monkey Business. But at the same time, I, I think, you know, I think besides Chico not having a ton to do, and I miss, and I miss the scene, I think it would have been better if it had the, 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 ta- the camel taxi scene with him and, yeah. him and Groucho, because that's one of the fun parts of a Marx Brothers film is the Chico those Groucho two, those scene. Two going off his other, yeah. yeah. Uh, but we do get some nice stuff. We get, we get the brothers acting together with, with the, f- eating the food yep. thing, which is a bit of a return to Night of the Opera with the hotel yeah. room food eating scene, but I still enjoyed it. Or There's room service. There's a lot service. of echoes of previous movies. There's echoes Definitely, and stuff yeah. like that. And, but, you know, four years later, I think that, you know, when you do a film like this, it's almost a remake. It's not, it's not a, an ori- wholly original film. Yeah. It's almost a nostalgic trip to go kind of go back and walk down memory lane of, of old Marx Brothers films. And that's what this movie gives you. And, you know, the writers of these films may have had, or even the Marx Brothers themselves, who may have suggested some of these bits to, as, you know, to be revived for, for this film. Uh, you know, as we were talking earlier, it, it, you know, it's, it's probable that people didn't get an opportunity to, to re-see the old Marx Brothers films. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these bits were seen for the first time by younger audiences or forgotten by older audiences who maybe were just pleasantly surprised to see little bits and pieces of what they remembered of what the Marx Brothers were, not necessarily exactly what they did, but yeah. but sequences like and that. And none of them are uh, too old or flabby or yeah. off their game. Everyone's yeah. still doing their thing. Chico's so, piano yeah. playing is great. Gro- uh, Harpo does a great harp bit. I love his, yeah. I love his harp bit. Groucho film. does a lot of good business. Groucho know? has a lot of fun and he doesn't feel like he has nothing to... Like, when you watch a film like... Uh, at the circus or go west or even a day of the races there's a lot of scenes that feel like he has nothing to do yeah and he's just saying he's things. just walking around he's just walking around and he's just saying like, that's the ugliest thing i've ever seen that's the greatest thing i've ever seen that's a you know it's a, i don't that's all he has that's yeah. the you know the lines that he's given and he just you know there's just not that much for him to do in those films in this movie he gets to be a lech he gets to be coy he gets to be abuse impossible power. yeah he gets to yeah he gets to abuse power he gets to be reckless you know he gets and and he gets put upon by his brothers as well. He, sure. he has his food eaten by them. He gets hit by a, a table and, and, you know, he has his dance floor taken away by their, by their machinations. Those are all good things in a Marx Brothers film. Yeah. That inter, interrelation between them is so important. In That's the interesting you say that. And it's not something I think we've really discussed before is they do, uh, have a brotherly relationship. Yes. Like, for do sure. they get annoyed by each other sometimes, but they still, care for each other and at no point are they going to go well i've had enough of this i'm leaving yeah. you know it's like yeah. no you guys are going to be once you once you've seen each other you're going to be together for this whole thing there's never yeah. an idea of i don't like you get out yeah it's nope we're all you know you're going to con me at one point this this i find amusing now you're annoying me <laughs> uh yeah it's all so brotherly and mm-hmm. and i think in, in doing that you do get that sense of Without being overt about it, uh, love. There's an affection there. Sure. You know, obviously when Chico and Harper were hugging off the top, it's like clearly they care for each other. But yeah, it's just they enjoy each other's company and what they've got to say. And they're always focused on on each other. And it's uh, it just makes it it's good. Yeah. It's fun to watch. And they're greeting to each other. There's a real callback to the coconuts where they meet in the lobby and they're following each other around with their hands out. Hey, how, you know what do you do and how do you yeah. and all that kind of stuff you know there's whereas i think there's a little difference between that and say like a three stooges or even an avon costello or what have you where they just always seem annoyed with each other yeah like one's trying to one's mean to the other yeah and that's the humor and in this case they're never mean to each other even no. when chico's trying to con groucho yeah it's never done with malice yeah yeah right he just sees an op- he sees an opportunity and he's and then it. groucho never takes it as like i'm furious at this yeah it's just like well, he got me again. That's the way it is. Okay. He's never 
that uh, that uh, Costello oh uh, anger. Which, yeah. yeah, so it's more it's more comfortable to watch this kind of thing. Not that they're not ha- don't have their charms, but it's uh, it's maybe it's even a little bit more Laurel and Hardy ish, and that there's always the affection between those. two. I guess they're affectionate, but there's all, there's frustration with them too. That's whereas true. With the Merce Brothers, that's true. Like, you know what? Hardy is uh, is annoyed with uh, what yeah. Laurel does. That's true. And, and there's crying. You're right. Forget <laughs> it. Back, uh, I withdraw my comment. <laughs> back up that truck. Yeah. Beep beep beep. Bring that piano back up beep. the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> the, the yeah, I mean, that, I think that's a, is a good point, and I, you know, obviously through stage convention they develop this idea that there are separate characters, but you know, as a family they are very close, and I think in as the characters in the movies they yeah. they always maintain a closeness, and it's it's good that the writers recognize that, and I think this film, you know, despite the plot heaviness of it, I think it's a well constructed Marx Brothers film. I think it uses mm-hmm. the elements that you know, if you like a Night of the Opera, if that's your you know, if that's your like your kind of peak of what you th- where you think the Merckx brothers, you know, like or where they peaked in their movie career. And I think this movie is a good echo. Obviously, it's not as good as, but it's a good no. echo of that film uh, in its construction and stuff like that. And you know, and it has you know an appropriate like the park bench moment in jail. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it there's and it feels like there's some you know there's something uh, there's some sort of risk. There's some, something something on the on the line. I just wish the in the final sequence of the film that they just didn't hand it all over to. To a kind of slapsticky sequence, a la Big Store, Go West, where we're not getting to see the Merckx brothers at their best. We're getting to see, you know, stunt people doing a lot of stuff right. for them, and then them kind of. Doing it's a it's a shots. lack of trust of uh, of, of that the characters can um, can keep the film going. We're just going to do a traditional ending that could be almost any. Yeah, movie. yeah, yeah. And if you're not doing something that shows the Merckx brothers as unique and using their unique talents, then you're wasting the Merckx brothers. Sure, sure. And I really think you missed. Uh, it would have been fun if. Uh, when they're on the plane, uh, at some point, Groucho or Harpo are wearing like an aviator's goggles and they co- you know, a full costume as if suddenly yeah. they are an aviator. Just yeah. something weird like that, that kind of, just to keep the film so it's, un- so it's not grounded. Yeah. You know, cause you don't, I don't want the ground, I don't want a grounded film. I don't, nope. you know, I don't care about the Scooby Doo reveal at the end of this. Yeah. This I mean, I do like, I mean, obviously they crash through, uh, through a jail. It's crazy. That's fun. That's crazy bananas. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, now we've like, Gone through, but it's yeah. not overdone. No, no, I like get the it. Crashes basically off camera. I understand, but it's a cartoon crash in the yeah. same way. The first time you see him, he's holding up the wall. Mm. There's t- he's yeah, he yeah. starts with rubble. He ends with rubble. Yeah. From ashes we are born to ashes we <laughs> we, we we go back. Uh, it's very nice and symbolic there. Yeah. yeah. From from dust you come and to dust you sh- and to dust you shall return. Is that? What yeah, that's uh, that's what they say. In from uh, dust to dawn. Death from dust till dawn. <laughs> yeah. Because the vampires turn to dust. Yeah, yeah. But we're not talking about that movie. No, please All don't. Right. It's a very disappointing film to me. So, uh, anything more on uh, this film? We, we feel like it was a, it was an adequate Marx Brothers movie. It did all right. It's not as good as some, but it is better than the last couple that we have seen. Yeah. Besides that, The Circus and Day of the Races. I actually, would, I would put this movie ahead of Day of the Races. Oh, interesting. All yeah, right. For me. Well, maybe, maybe we'll talk gonna... about that. We'll talk about that in our purportedly to happen soon one day, uh, show where we talk about kind of roundup show. All right. Sounds good. Which is going to be about uh, two episodes from now. So if you want to, uh, tell us again, once again, if we missed anything in this episode or in previous episodes, you have any questions, you have any feedback. And I know you do because you usually write us after every one of yeah. these and we really do appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, please contact us at sneakydragon.com underneath, uh, the episodes. Go to sneakyd at sneakydragon.com, sneaky underscore dragon on Twitter or sneakydragon.tumblr.com on Tumblr. And those are the ways. Or just go to Dave's house and talk to him. His address is somewhere on our site. So, you know, 
go and uh, go and say hi. That's also fine. It is. Can I just uh, mention? Something? Oh, please do mention uh, people who have mentioned us. Sure. Well, this is actually uh, an email we got. Oh, from, okay. From someone I'm going to say his name is Anthony. Hi, Anthony. And he wrote to say, as a big Marx Brothers fan, I love the podcast. I just wanted to suggest. Uh oh. Everything Stranger Things for your hypothetical Stranger Things podcast. Oh, okay. So thank you for that. Thank you for helping us out because our brains were not working that that day. Right. We could not think of a of a good name, a good title for our right. for our thing. Obviously, jokingly mentioned. What uh, I would like to do is I would like to have a Stranger Things podcast, but also yeah. do a Seeing Things podcast, uh, and I'd like to Stranger mash up all the yeah, Seeing Stranger Things, Seeing Stranger Things. And I, what I would like to do is then like show uh, go yeah. over episodes of the Canadian uh, show Seeing Things, but then imagine it as if it was uh, with the characters from uh, Stranger Things. I've been watching those on YouTube. Pretty good, eh? Yeah, it's fun. All right, well, fun. we're off topic, so let's get back on it. We'll Just I'll about- say one one thing about it though, because these shows date back to when I was in grade ten. Okay, and uh, it's amazing to watch them like driving around in cars or just doing things in life. And you're like, this was normal to me once that people drove around in big clunky vehicles that yeah. look like they're going to roll over all the time. Yes. And everything was bulky and ugly and kind of and it's just interesting. You just forget that you don't you don't remember how clunky things once were in your life. If you want to hear us talk more about seeing things, I'm going to tell you. Go to Sneaky Dragon yes, and uh, to our other podcast. <laughs> uh, we we appreciate you um, talking about our show on iTunes and giving us reviews. Uh, whatever you feel about it, it just helps people to find the show. Yeah. Uh, if you do go on there and give us a review, uh, Dave usually bribes you by saying your name on the show. I don't think we've had any new ones. I did look the other day and there's no one new there. So so everyone, just so you know, we're running out of shows where you can I can say your name and thank you in person. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we have one more movie left, which is Love Happy. All right, there we go. We're going to be doing Love Happy next time. And then we have one more possible episode after that, which if you want us to, and by that I mean if you contribute, we will have a question and answer show with the kind of final, uh, our final thoughts. Right, and we might careers. give away like a little prize at the end to sure. probably, probably Sneaky Dragon related because we don't have any uh, Marx Brothers merch because we do not uh, own anything Marx Brothers. And legally we can't. So... You'll get something something else. Is that right? We can't legally uh, give away March Marx Brothers merchandise. I guess that's true. We can't. We we really can't. <laughs> but you know, we'll we'll figure something out. We'll think yeah. this, we've got like we've got a couple of weeks to figure out what's going on. That's um, true. So thank you so much for for listening. We do appreciate uh, that, and uh, it's been it's been great. How many of you have been responding to this? It's been uh, it's been a delightful surprise. Yes, it has. I kind of I kind of wondered if we were we were just going to be throwing this one out into the ether. Yeah, I wonder if we were going to be holding up a wall that no one cared. But apparently, <laughs> we are that load bearing podcast. So uh, we yes. are a load. Yes, get back to us before two weeks go, and we got to let that load go. Uh, I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David Dedrick. This has been Full Marks. Uh, join you next time. Join you next time uh, for Love Happy. Join us next time for Love Happy? Join you next time for Love Happy. I'll I'm... join you next time for Love Happy. Uh, I'll you. see you in hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my voice. <laughs> <laughs>